Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. The Unclaimed Property Division is holding unclaimed funds from utility bills, uncashed paychecks, savings accounts, and more. To see if you have unclaimed money, you can visit findmassmoney.gov. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, live from our GVH studio at the Boston Public Library, is a snowstorm, what it takes to distract us from the distractor-in-chief. We'll take your calls asking you if you welcome winter weather and wall-to-wall coverage if it gets your mind off Donald Trump. And the CDC is reporting an epidemic of schadenfreude. Now the Patriots have lost their grip on the top seed in the AFC. We'll talk to Sports Authority Trina Kuznerik about this, how Canada's curling team is brushing up its act with equal prize money for men and women, and other sports headlines. At noon, Boston City Council President Andrea Campbell joins us to talk about voters electing the most diverse city council in Boston's history. And WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen is here for the definitive review of The Irishman, plus Jane Austen reinvented for Christmas. All that is coming up on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Howdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. We are broadcasting live from the WGBH studio at the snowy Boston Public Library. Actually, it's not snowing inside, it's snowing outside. We understood that. It's snowmageddon, snowpocalypse, whatever you want to call it, not really. Uh So the Northeast is sort of buried in snow. Schools are closed, some at least. Parents are trapped indoors with their kids. The commuter's treacherous. Hundreds of flights have been canceled. But is it worth it if this is what it takes our eyes and ears to be off Donald Trump? Is it a welcome sight to turn on the news and instead of seeing the president or the 2020 candidates or Jerry Nadler on the screen, a reporter standing in the middle of the storm, knee deep in snow instead? 877-301-8970. As recently as yesterday, we spoke to someone fairly prominent around these parts, Keith Lockhart. What did he say every time he's listening to our show? And uh, the name Donald Trump comes up. What does he do? Turns off the radio. Switches the station. So we want to know, as inconvenient, as cold, as wet as it is, is is this what it takes to get us talking about something else? Is it a good thing? And by the way, if you want to talk, we haven't talked about this with people in months. Mm -hmm. What are your techniques? If you are amongst those people who just can't take any more of all Trump all the time, if it's the snow that did it, that's fine. If it's not, what is it? that allows you to get a respite from the all-Trump, all-the-time world? Well, it's gonna, for me, it's going to be a lot... I need a lot more snow than this, Jim. This isn't nearly enough. This is like a dusting. No, I would I, need two feet for me to... You know, but some <laughs> people may think... Away. Some may think we're kidding. I really do believe... Because this is not that huge a snowstorm. It really isn't. Well, not here. It's and huge I think in other places. It's over... Yeah, but we are in this place, are in not this in other place. places. Right. I think one of the reasons it's been overplayed is not oh. just because... Television news in particular loves a snowstorm to boost ratings. Yep. I really do think it's what the people want. Remember we discussed with Keith Lockhart yesterday the value of music even uh, spiking right. in turbulent times? I would argue the value of a snowstorm, even if it's not huge, is more valuable in Trumpian times than it is in normal times. And we've had a lot of people. You know who comes to mind? Jennifer Egan, a really oh, yes. smart person, Pulitzer Prize winner. She was on with us for the latest novel, what, about a year ago? What did she say? She does not read a story in the newspaper, nor does she watch television or listen to radio if Donald Trump's name comes up. So I would suggest that the snow is serving a convenient purpose 
for people who were all trumped out. Well, you know, didn't you hear? I mean, I heard this from people over at Manhattan Beach. I think we talked to her about. We were sort of. That was her book. Her, that's right. That's her right. Really yeah, good uh, novel. Book. Yeah, she's written a lot of great stuff. Anyway, um, you know, a couple of people over Thanksgiving were saying. Uh, uh, one of my daughter's friends was saying that his father had been ordered not to watch uh, so much cable news. By a doctor? By a doctor. That's not true. Because of his blood pressure. Is that really true? Yes. And I think that happens a lot. I remember when I was on vacation a few, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was taking time off and I was relaxing and very chill and very calm. And it was during the first day of the impeachment hearings. I don't think so. When Bill Taylor was, um, was, was, was testifying. And I could feel it in my body when I went to the computer to turn it on and I, to watch Bill Taylor. I could feel the, the tension, tension coming yeah. back into my body. So I think it's a real a, a big deal for people. I know a lot of people who are not in the news business, which we are. You can't really do it when you're in the news business, but who are, are, tune out regularly, like for a mental health thing because they're well, too can upset. I think, you know, when we, when we have a, top, a discussion like this, and by the way, our number is 877-301-897. We want to know if uh, your focus on the snowstorm, even though I don't think it's anywhere near what expectations were, is in essence an effort to avoid Trump talk. And if it isn't, what do you use to avoid it? If you do, whenever we have this discussion, you always say, well, it's my job, so I have to do it. But you know, I just realized as we decided upon this topic well, earlier this morning, I, as you know, I usually get home, sit on the couch and watch CNN until I pass out, <laughs> even if it's the same story 18 times. Last night, uh, I switched from CNN, even though it was my favorite program, Anderson Cooper. And you know what I watched? A show that I'm not crazy about, The Kaminsky Method. I like it. Yeah. Alan Arkin and, uh, and uh, Michael Douglas. It's, it's cute, but it's not great. And you know what I realized when I woke up this morning? You know why I watch it? Particularly in light of the fact that I'm not that crazy about it, and I watched several episodes, because it got me away from CNN. So it wasn't, even, it wasn't like a conscious choice. I'm gonna tur- it was the pre-buttle moment where the Republicans came out with their analysis of why Trump didn't do anything wrong out of the Intelligence com- uh, uh, Committee. And I think the reason I switched to the Kaminsky method and stayed there for two and a half episodes, even though I didn't like it that much, was because it was a respite. It was well, a break from the Trump stuff. Everyone's criticizing the Irishman for being three and a half hours long. <laughs> Tell you, it takes a We're lot of television. We're talking to Jared about that later. I know. I mean, you have to split it up. At least if you're watching it on Netflix, you have to split it up. So you watch a little bit, you know, and you get you get a break from that. And you look at you know mafiosos killing each other, and it's kind of a little nice break. So my uplifting. Thing, my yeah, favorite thing is. about the Irishman, if you haven't seen it yet, they they introduce these different characters, and underneath they have a chyron that says. Yeah, they do. Uh, Joey the Rifleman Salemi, or whatever his name is, was shot in the head seven times in 1985. Bad, yeah, Somebody else was shot in his bathroom. I mean, they give you the fate of these guys, which sort of shows that crime, at least in many of those circumstances, does not pay. Uh, you are risking your life being Well, it pays a for a time, but it doesn't pay in the long run. Robert says that maybe Trump should have taken a page from Greta Thunberg and sailed solo over to the United Nations, uh, to the UK for the NATO meetings. Then we'd take a three-week break from that clown when he's incommunicado. You know, I, I want to, before we no get to internet. the calls, I want to mention your whole thing about when you were off and you sort of you were off it. the grid. Yes. Sort of, you can, there is a physiological difference. Yeah. That is totally true. I don't know if it's blood pressure or if it's just a tension coming mm-hmm. into your body. And you say to yourself, how could this have happened to the United States of America? Yeah, who was <laughs> the person happened? who said on our show about six months ago this is that do you remember a time when, like, Barack Obama was president? You could go three or four days Bill without McKibben. even mentioning. Was it Bill McKibben Bill who said McKibben. it to him? Bill McKibben. We're going to talk to Bill in a little while. We're going to talk to you later about how we're ignoring the climate change as it, as it barrels down upon us. He said he went out to the Alaskan tundra oh, where what there was, was. no You're internet, totally right. no right, cell right. phones, no nothing to get a break. And he was the person that made the, the remark, and it's a great one, 
that usually, you know, there's presidential election, your candidate wins, <laughs> your candidate loses. You like John Kerry, you didn't like John Kerry, you like George Bush, you didn't like George Bush. The election is over, and you could go for you days, if not weeks, when, without so ever once thinking about the President of the United States. This guy has borrowed into your head. He's right in the middle of your brain, and you just can't uh, get rid of him. And it's really, really upsetting. So I love the fact that people tune out, because I think... Um, it, I think it really your impacts health. your mental health. Absolutely. Let's go to well, Joe the doctor is telling you that it impacts your physical health as well. Joe and Akar, you're first on Boston Public Radio, live from our studio at the Boston Public Library. Number is 877-301-8970. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Good morning. How you doing? Excellent. Good. Um, I think whether it's for good or for ill, regardless of what you do, you could vacation in Tahiti for two weeks. <laughs> Trump will still be in the back of your mind because he's just that reckless, and it's so crazy, and it's such a, uh, what my kids say, I won't say it on the radio, but a mind. No, I mean, we know exactly what you mean. So, Joe, do you ever try to get a break from it, or, you, or you've given up? Oh, oh yeah. I, I, I unplug often. My wife doesn't. She's, I come home and CNN's on, and then she jumps to Fox to check what they're saying. It's a mess. But I, I can unplug pretty easy, and I, and I partake in the dispensary products on oh, a regular basis. Good for you. That, that helps me out, yeah. Good for you, Obviously Joe. Obviously a good friend of Marjorie's. Joe, thank you for the call. Yeah, that's what you have to do. Yeah, every time there's a commercial, I have to switch to the other station to see what they're doing. I mean, that's what I do. I go back and forth between CNN and Fox, CNN and Fox, to see what they're talking about in the other station. Uh, by the way, this is from Pamela. Pamela says, I've gained a million pounds because I'm in a constant state of stress since Trump took office. If he gets reelected, I'm going to turn it into an Oopa Loopa. I can't take much more of listening Can to I tell his you something? voice. Who's the, what's the name of that? Pamela. I've gained weight during uh, Trump and I'm totally convinced because I have an eating thing. I mean, as you know, yeah, I've always had I've an eating that, thing. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I don't mean that I just eat. I mean, I eat <laughs> with when I have high anxiety, I eat even more than I ordinarily yeah. eat. And I'm sure it's a function of, uh, of uh, Trump time. Yeah. It really is. Well, you're eating. Joe's going to the pot store. <laughs> Everybody's going to find a way to deal with it. We, you know, we don't want you to go too far in that regard. But anyway, let's go to uh, David calling from an island. Hi, David. Hello, David. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Good. What do you do? I binge watch West Wing on Netflix mm -hmm. so I can get my political fix without my head exploding. <laughs> Is that, I can never tell when someone, do you mean that seriously? Do you consciously do that to get away from this? Yes, I do. I think it's great. I watched an episode this morning after watching Morning Joe. <laughs> Is that really true? <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> That is great. Morning Joe with Mika and Joe Scarborough. Joe Scarborough. Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough. And Mike and Barnacle, ex of the Boston Globe. He's, by the Mike way, Barnacle, Barnacle yeah. is great on that show. He really I is terrific on that show. Yeah, and then on to West Wing. So how are you coping with the rest of the day? What do you do? You just wait for tomorrow? What do you do, David? Uh, take a nap, watch another episode of West Wing. <laughs> Good I'm for retired. you. Did you figure that out? Well, Good. no, I guess we did. Or you're late for work, one of the two. Remember the West Wing, though? I was not, I mean, that was Martin, Martin Sheen, played yeah, the President of the United right. States, right? And yeah. he, was, he was doing the right thing all the time and stuff, wasn't he, more or less? Yep. Yeah. Well, more well, or less. Yeah. Until he got caught yeah. lying about his MS, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. 
Well, anyway, those were the days. Hey, those David, days. you sound like you've figured it out beautifully. Thanks for your call and continued good health. We appreciate it. You know, it. there was a long time. Remember Winston Churchill said, so I'm getting it wrong, but essentially what he said is mm. that, you know, the, the United States will go back and forth and pro and, mm. and, pro and con, but at the yeah. end of the day, they will finally, when they're backed into a corner, there's nothing else they can do. Mm-hmm. They can do the right thing. You know, I kind of grew up with that. I was thinking, okay, we may disagree about things, but, but when the, when the you-know-what hits the fan, in the end, the United States will do the right thing. But you say you don't believe that anymore. Are you kidding? How, how can you believe it anymore? How, how can you believe it anymore? It, we're not doing the right thing on so many fronts. Well, can I just say, seem to I don't mean to criticize you this early in the show, yep. but if you uh, were able to step back for a second and join with the 53% of Republicans who believe that Donald Trump is a better leader than Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> you'd probably be calmer and maybe better. We're going to discuss that with John King. Apparently, it made him speechless on CNN when he saw those polling results. 53% of Republicans. Yeah, Trump clamped. over Lincoln. Lenny and Canton, thank you for calling Lenny. Hi, Lenny. Hi, guys. How are you? Excellent. Good. Good. Well, not so great, actually, Lenny, actually, because you're hearing about everybody's angst and anxiety and blood pressure and tension, but all that. Other than that, we're fine. Other than that, we're great. What's up? Well, I ran into you last summer, Jim, at Orleans Stop and Shop, and my hands were full, and I couldn't shake my hand. Couldn't shake your hand. I was crushed. (laughs) But how great. Let's talk about that Stop and Shop. Is that an excellent (laughs) Stop and Shop? It's like as big as Rhode Island, isn't it? Well, it's okay, but it's wicked overpriced. Yeah, that's a good point. So I have a tendency to go to the Shaw's. It was a fluke that I was in there that day. I think God sent me there so I could see you in person. Well, there you a, go. That's exactly what I thought, Jim Lenny. is a celebrity. I hope to see you next summer, too. What's up today, Lenny? Well, today, well, on December 15th, the first caller alluded to Tahiti. I am actually going there. <laughs> I'm going to Morea and Bora Bora for about two weeks, and I hope to absolutely forget about Donald Trump. God. I'm, I'm sure they know who he is, but... <laughs> It's not, it's not going to be 24-7, although I am bringing my computer because I have to stay online at some point. You know, Lenny, you, you reminded me of when you said I'm going Bora, there and I'm hoping to zone Bora. out. And, and I don't even know if, they have, if there's Wi-Fi or whatever. Every international reporter we have ever had on the show, including our friends from the world when they came back from Tehran. Mm-hmm. Remember when Marco and his, Marco Werman and his colleague yep. were in Tehran years after? That? You know what they say to us? That every single question from every single person they encounter is about what, Lenny? What do you think it's about? How do you like the president? How do you like, like How do you like Donald Trump? So you should call us when you get back from Bora Bora and let us know if you escaped, because yeah. I'm not convinced you will. Well, brilliant. Uh, thank you for the call, Lenny. Thanks, Lenny. Hope to see you next brilliant summer. Brilliant prognosticator that I am. I What'd went to say? Mexico for, for vacation yeah. right before and? the election, and that was right, you know, when the president had talked about, you know, Mexicans being all rapists and murderers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And everybody I There's saw. There's some good ones. I was saying, don't worry. We're never going to elect. Don't worry. There is no way he's going to go. Don't worry. Don't worry. It'll never happen. Shows what I know, Jim. That's what Lisa Page said, too. By the way, did you, you know, we haven't talked about that. I should you know just something? say, you know good something? for her. Good for her. Lisa good Page, you her. should go to the Daily Beast and see, obviously, Lisa Page is the person who... Donald, who, frankly, her, I mean, doing the texting and the stuff okay. with her she, she lover was not wise. Having not said wise, that. But, but she, I am completely on her side so in her saying that, that, that the so punishment does not fit the crime. I Lisa agree. Page, she's been mentioned over and over again with Peter Strzok, as she said, they were lovers and having a, an affair and they were texting back and forth and saying nasty things. About and no the evidence after investigation that affected no. their work. But she, she has been called treasonous by the President of the United yeah. States. He made fun of her, like in the midst of having sex with this guy mm-hmm. at a rally, just ridiculed her disgusting. and demeaned her and degraded her. 
what is this about? What is this about? Is Marie you know what Yvonne she is, by the way? A woman. A woman. And I think that Marie has something Yvonne to do with it. And Marie said a couple of weeks ago when she was testifying, okay, he, 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 you, can, you can get rid of any ambassador you want. You can mm. get, pick whoever, whoever you want to be an ambassador. Why did he need to smear my good reputation? And you say the same thing about Lisa Page. Why does he need to uh, humiliate this woman? I mean, well, she decided just, not to take it anymore, which is pretty great. But it great. just shows how far we've gotten that here we are with the President of the United States doing this over and over again to people, and it's just another well, day Well, you know, when beach. you're a celebrity, you can grab them by the whatever, but, but that apparently was okay with 63 million people, Marjorie. Okay, we're talking about the weather, asking you if it takes a storm bigger than this one or if it's, this is just enough to alleviate some of your Trump Anxiety. Not talk about it for a little while. We're going to keep talking about that for the next few minutes on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie, live from our GBH studio at the <coughs> Boston Public Library. By the way, it is beautiful to be in the studio any day. It's, when it's snowing, it is really... I know. Beautiful with the floor-to-ceiling windows. In any case, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about what everyone is talking about. The weather asking you, as inconvenient as it is, do you prefer talking about the storm to Trump's Twitter storms? The number is 877-301-897. I know you have emails to read before. I just want to say I was looking at the Globe website. In an act, a very generous, responsible act, they just mentioned that your former boss, the editor of the Boston Herald, is leaving, Joe Shaka, to join Channel 7. And the question, I just read the story, they don't answer are they cutting off his health insurance like they did yours when you left after 30 loyal years? Can, you, can someone call the Globe and find out if they're ending his health insurance and that of his children I, I think like he, they did to Marjorie when she left after 30 years on a in, Friday phone yeah. call while she's on the radio so they wouldn't even have to tell her? In any okay. case, I'm sorry. You have some emails. Okay, I do have some emails. Yes, I know you okay. don't want me to mention that anymore. Go ahead. This is from Patricia. When I hear the Republicans say there's no first-hand knowledge of quid pro quo, despite Mulvaney and Trump himself saying that he did it, my abject terror from the impending doom of climate change is a wonderful distraction. And then David says, I was on vacation for 10 days in October in Key West. Not a day went by that I did not hear about the president or see an equal amount of pro and anti-Trump T-shirts. No, there's no escape. I mean, but there no escape. And, and, and again, I, I think music, a la Keith Locker and Andres uh, Lockhart and Andres Nelsons, both of them have talked to us about the beauty, the extra beauty of music in turbulent times is the thing. A great restaurant, if you don't look at your phone every 30 seconds, is another great thing. A long meal, and maybe talking about the weather is at least a temporary solution uh, to Kate Newton. You are next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for the call. Hi. Hi, guys. I was just thinking about this yesterday. Yeah. Uh, prior to November 20th, um, I was obsessed. I'm freelance, so I listened to it all, all of Vinman's testimony. Um, it felt like I ran a marathon by the end of the day. Um, and then, <laughs> then my 11-year-old was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Oh. doing great now. Oh, good. But I missed Sondland. I missed Fiona Hill. I missed everything. And now I have... No idea what's going on, just getting through the day today, and it's, it's actually been great. Isn't nope. it amazing how freeing it is? I mean, it is. You can hear it in your voice, by the way, Kate, too. It's, it's upbeat what? and all that sort you of know, stuff. You know, Kate, it's kind of like, like a drug. I have some empathy with people that are trying to stay away from mm-hmm. liquor or whatever it is. Because like I said to myself, 
Why am I doing this? I mean, okay, I'm doing it here during the day at work, but I don't have to do it again at night. Why am I doing this? But it's like this, you know, it's, it's like this primal urge or something, you know? I, it's just, I, I would imagine it's like people that can't, you know, stop the drinking or something. You know what I mean? You know, Kate, you're lucky you're not on Marjorie's email list. Uh, I don't talk to Marjorie that much over the weekend, usually Sunday nights or something. There is not an hour that goes by where Chelsea and I do not get emails from Marjorie about some story you read at 3 o'clock in the morning about Trump's impact on some obscure something or other. So, Kate, you're a role model for Marjorie Egan. Thanks so much for the call. We appreciate it. Jack just emailed and said he's the guy that keeps a list of all your bands. Oh, I love Jack. Jack says, the drive to work was pretty difficult today. I spent no time fretting about Trump, nor did I fret about the snowflakes. That's us. Uh The Trump so offends. (laughs) So he's, uh, he's not offended. 877-301-8970 877-301-8970 is the snow provided a diversion. And I would, the reason why I would suggest it has is because it's not nearly as bad as was projected, but we're talking about it as if it's one of those snowmageddon kinds of experiences. And I think it's to get, even if it's subliminal, it's to get us away from Donald Trump. Paul says the Farmer's Almanacs are predicting Trump blizzards through June <laughs> of 2020. <laughs> Donna in Worcester, thanks for Hi, calling. Donna. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. I have to turn, turn you down on the radio so I don't feedback myself. Well, we're glad so you're I told you a year ago when you were asking how people were handling his stress, but here we are a whole year later, <laughs> and my head is about to explode again. That's good news. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. What did you say? What did you I, say to us a year ago, Donna, when you called? What did you say? I hate to say it. I don't remember, but it was enough for Marjorie to call me back and have a conversation for some article. She oh, was really? Writing. Oh, that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. So how are you coping so, now in I, 2019? I, well, right this minute, uh, what I've been doing is just sitting in front of the computer playing cubits until I, <laughs> until I can't move my fingers anymore. <laughs> but unfortunately, I'm listening to Jesus, all the hearings, everything else, and my blood pressure is up, and I have gained weight, and I think I'm going to die. <laughs> But I well, can't that's all stop good listening news, because I can't let you know, I feel like there should be something. One day they're going to tell us what we can do. Um, but wow, this person is dismantling the entire world, the entire planet, and that's what he's going to brag about when he's done here. Well, I mean, he's also a better leader than Lincoln, as I said a while ago, <laughs> according to 53% of Republicans. So Donna, hang there in there, go. and thank you very much wow, for the Donna. call. Yeah. That's... Ernie in West Medford. Hi, Ernie. Hey, Ernie. Ernie? Yes, hi, good morning. Hi. And to you, what's uh, up? Uh, hi, second time caller. Thank you, Great. thank you. Great, thank you. A couple of years ago about coffee and I remember stuff. it well. Nice Do talk. You well. No, that's, I don't, but I'm great. thrilled you're calling. Yeah, Go ahead. Yeah. So, so I, I, my wife and I tried to escape, so we just came back from three weeks in Turkey. Oh. Where it's, where it's very interesting to find uh, a complete correlation between our feelings with Trump and theirs with Erdogan. Oh, yeah. The jokes were the same. I mean, it was really rather fascinating. So it's hard to get away from. The difference is that, of course, journalism can exist here and yeah. not there, but it didn't stop, you know, the uh, sophisticated rug salesmen from going on tirades around both of them. But the, the, why I called is that we tried to escape further by going up in the hills and ran into a goat herder who clearly <clears throat> lived in a cave there 
and they, they do have caves, cutouts uh, in the near uh-huh. Cappadocia. <clears throat> and here he is with his goats, and we, the 11 of us walked up to him, and he just started yelling, Trump, go. <laughs> Erdogan, go. And, and we, said, we said, hi, how are you? And he, he had no other language. He just said, Trump, go. Erdogan, go. And, and looked at us and turned and walked away with his goats. That's the best one yet. That is herder. right up there in a cave. In a cave. I, can they get uh, Wi-Fi in the they caves? They get CNN International <laughs> in the CNN. cave. I don't know. Ernie, that is a fabulous story. Ernie, that is a fabulous story, especially since it is true that the, the press is, is so controlled there. It's, it's a scary You know, situation. speaking of Erdogan, uh, yes. a friend and ally of the president's, uh, though not uh, much of the rest of the world, uh, I was lucky enough to have Ennis Cantor on last week, who's the Celtic, who uh, uh, essentially is a warrant essentially has been put out by Erdogan for this guy because he is leading one of the leaders of the protests against his autocratic, undemocratic rule. He is, I mean, most people know him for being a pretty good basketball player. He is an inspirational leader and then some. You should Google Greater Boston and E-N-E-S, Cantor, K-N-T-E-R. He is fabulous well, tell, and has done some great work. Tell people what's happened regarding him and his family. Well, I mean, first of all, his father, uh, which I wasn't aware of until he was coming on, his father, uh, he believes, was made to say, he hasn't seen his family in years, by the way. His sister is a medical student who can't get a job, uh, he thinks, because of his activities. His father was, uh, he believes, forced to sign a statement denouncing his son by the Erdogan forces, which is obviously really tough for him. Uh, he was confronted. You know, there were some people who harassed him at a mosque right by my house in Cambridge. But this guy is a real leader. He's got a fabulous sense of humor at the same time. He's really, he's really an impressive character. And if you care what's happening in that part of the world, check him out. In any case, Ernie in West Medford. Oh, we just did you, didn't we? Did we just do Ernie in yes, West Medford? Yes, we did, Ernie in West Medford. Sorry, let's go to Sarah in New Hampshire. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Hi. Love you guys. Thank you. Every day when thank I'm you, driving thank around. You. Great. Um, so don't feel really bad for me, but I've spent hundreds of dollars on QVC because I turn off CNN and go to QVC to leave my mind. <laughs> so, Sarah, we're losing you, but you're, you're basically online, you're television shopping just to escape. Is that what you're saying? Yes, to escape. Yeah. Have, have you bought anything and, worthwhile? Uh, um, no. Well, well, Christmas, yeah. <laughs> nothing. But, um, I can relate to Ernie because we went to Europe about a, a month ago, and every person that we met from other countries came up to us with this like sad face, and they said, "Oh, we're really sorry. We're sorry." <laughs> I know about Trump, and they really, they really um, can relate. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that uh, that that people in Europe said they were they felt empathy. The implication being that they thought you were not a, a, a Trumpian. When I was in, I always hate to do this because Marty says, oh, Jim was in France. I was in France during George W. Bush, who was not terribly popular there. And no one said they were sorry. A lot of French people were really hostile in great part because we came from the place that elected George W. Bush, and then was back in France when Obama was president, and I, I could feel a totally different vibe from uh, the people. So, you know, it's interesting about how the rest of the world reacts to people from the country where there's a leader 
who they're not crazy about. Sarah, thank you very much well, for Well, I call. think that's what a lot of people from other countries are worried about when they look at uh, the president now with NATO or with, with, with you know, the Kurds and all these things he's doing internationally. They're thinking to themselves, Americans elected him. Americans could re-elect him. Americans could elect somebody else like him. I think they've not only questioned, they questioned who we are, well, you left one thing off your list. As we've said, we're going to talk to Bill McKibben in an hour or so, who essentially started this whole movement with his book, The End of Nature, 30 years ago. Uh, UN climate uh, conferences, COP25, is happening in Madrid as we speak. There is one country on the planet, on the planet, who is not, uh, who's no longer a signatory to the Paris Climate Accords. One, and it, it is us. I know. And if you're from a country, particularly a developing country, that has great threat of literally being overwhelmed by the consequences of climate change, how do you think you feel about the United States well, of America? I think that that's the biggest, that's the biggest fear I have, is that if, if he is reelected, where does that leave the, the planet? Where does that leave our children and our future grandchildren? I mean, it's just, it's just really But for him to get reelected and for that to happen, 60-plus million people in this country have to say that they either don't take that consequence seriously or they're willing to overlook that consequence. I mean, whenever people talk about Trump being reelected, it isn't like he decides, I'm going to be reelected, and he just stays for four more years. He has to win a majority of electoral votes to be elected president Jim. again, which says, uh, uh, to me, makes a really powerful statement about the things that you, for example, care a lot about, like climate change. Well, but again, if you turn on Fox News or you listen to Rush Limbaugh, there's no climate change. Oh, that's a good there's point. no climate that's catastrophe. Point. What are you talking about? Everything is fine. And you know, the goat herder, we just had the call about the goat that herder. That was one of the best I mean, ever. We Ernie. Have, well, people are very upset about that because, um, is, 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 uh, is, who, who sent this to me? Robert just mm -hmm. said this was his last resort. Things got really bad. He said he was going to move to a cave. There goes my moving to the cave idea. I, I can move to the cave and nothing, nothing will change. I can do the, the most isolated thing possible and it won't make a difference. This is very upsetting to people, Jim. You know, I hope There's Ernie no was not exaggerating uh, uh, the facts in that call because that really... Does that not say at all? Didn't he say the guy didn't speak any English except, yeah. what, no Trump, yeah, no, no Erdogan? Yeah, no Trump, no Erdogan, that's yeah. right. In any case, we've got to take a break, Marjorie. Okay, uh, coming up, we're going to talk to our sports authority, Trendy Kuznarek, about what happened to the Patriots this weekend and a bunch of other sporting news. It's doing some really neat stories on these little tiny skateboarders. Trendy Kuznarek next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan, live from our uh, GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. These days, it seems like the Patriot way is to lose their way. After losing to the Houston Texans Sunday night, they also lost their grip on the top seed in the AFC run for the playoffs. But does this mean they've also lost their shot at the Super Bowl? Joining us for a take on this, how hockey coach Bill Peters' career just went up in flames and other headlines at the intersection of sports and society. Trenny Kuznarek. Trenny is an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor. Hello, Trenny Kuznarek. Hi, guys. So Trenny Kuznarek. In her Marquette knit 
hat. It's I very cute. Say. Thanks. I'm very cold today. Yes. Yeah. And like wearing my and well, one I know Jim will just make fun of me when I put I on my did, Canada yes. Goose hat oh, yeah, or my <laughs> Canada Goose coat oh, does, and yeah. ask me if I'm bougie <laughs> and don't I care about the animal that died for the fur on the well, hood? That'll save five minutes. So, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I figured I would just go with the hat. <laughs> I like I like the hat. Some people thanks. look good in hats. You're one of them. You oh, look good thanks. in the hat. Did you see Beth Titel's great story in the yes, Globe yesterday about people that wear hats? It's true. I don't think I've ever seen you in a hat. I actually wear one in the car. Don't wear it in because I know you'll make fun of me. That is to- <laughs> on my honor. That is true. I take it off, mess up my hair in the car, and then I come in. Okay. Oh, wow. So yeah, the, gr- exactly. the, uh, the great Dan Chauncey, columnist for The Globe, is talking about the uh, Patriots' defeat the, uh, on, uh, over the Sunday night at the hands of the Houston, Texas. And he said, Houston Texans, excuse me. And he said there were times Sunday night when it felt like the end of the Brady-Belichick two-decade run. Sean, you got a point? Uh, it, it, is, it is feeling more this year than any year prior um, that maybe this run is coming to an end. Listen, everybody knew it was going to happen, right? At some point, your two-decades-long run of always winning the AFC East, all, almost, you know, going to the Super Bowl, what are we up to, nine, you know, what is it, nine, nine times? Yeah. Um, that, that is going to come to a halt it just this year, I think it feels very sudden because the offense is so bad. Now, with that said, I'm still not counting them out for the Super Bowl. I mean, last year we talked about how, wow, they, they can't get this offense going and they don't have the receivers and Tom Brady doesn't quite look the same. And, uh, you know, it, he's seeing ghosts and he's getting rid of the ball. I mean, all the things we're saying this year, we said last year as well. The difference from last year to this year uh, is one, they had a run game last year that they could rely on. They have yet to really find that this year, although there were glimmers of it on Sunday night. Uh, And two, Tom Brady is always this like really positive guy. And he always finds a way to put a positive spin on everything and still seem like he's having fun and he's enjoying football. This year, that's not, that's the biggest difference to me is that it just feels like Tom Brady is not happy that he's not enjoying himself, that he's frustrated that he doesn't have the pieces around him that he needs to succeed. I I think, and understandably so, I think sometimes he gets a little, you know, frustrated or I don't even know what the right word is, maybe just annoyed by, you know, playing with guys who are 20 years his junior and that he has to carry them and mentor them and baby them a little bit. And he's not used to playing with guys like that. He's used to playing with guys that he can look at and say, you did this wrong, do it right. And on the next play, they go out and do it correctly. Well, when you're dealing with two rookies and Jacoby Myers and Nikhil Harry, who literally grew up watching Tom Brady. Like I keep trying to explain this to people. Like imagine if you were, imagine if the person you idolized growing up, suddenly you were working alongside them. You would want to always be at your best, but part of the danger in that is that you're trying so hard to be good that you end up not being good because it's it's like you're so worried about not screwing up as opposed to worrying about doing your job Look well. At face. And I think that that might be what's happening here. And so that and I just and there's such a generational divide and and I just wonder if like all of it is the perfect confluence of absolutely blowing up. But the guy's 42 and he ran how many yard 13 yard little scamper. I mean well, that I is mean, unbelievable. Yards. Well, yeah, but, but he's a guy who ran up, you know, know. Like Mount Washington. Threw four interceptions too. No, 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 no. He just had one interception, oh, uh, three touchdowns, four. Oh, four touchdowns for the other team. I didn't watch the game. Yes, obviously. obviously, really. <laughs> Really? No, I did not. Do you but want to you know, break down the offense for? I don't us want to break down, down okay, the offense, fine. but I do have a question. Please. You know, the Patriots are 
a, a powerhouse yes. dynasty. Yes. How come you, you wonder? I know they had the the abusive wide receiver that was really talented. They yes. had to get rid of. But but can't you? How hard is it to get wide receivers that are that are up to the task when you're the New England Patriots? Well, the problem is uh, historically, uh, Bill Belichick has not drafted receivers all that well. If you really look at the guys that they have drafted who have been successful at this level for a long time, the last one we can all, every time we talk about this, the last one we really can come up with is Julian Edelman. Julian Edelman was actually a quarterback. Uh, in college and then transitioned to being a slot receiver. Um, So a lot of the wide receivers that they have had who have been successful for them, Brandon Cooks, um, Danny Amendola, Wes Welker, those guys were all brought in afterwards. They were free agent acquisitions. For whatever reason, I don't know why, you know, and this is another point of contention, and I don't blame Tom Brady for being frustrated with this. This is a guy who year in and year out has taken a look at his contract and said, okay, I'll take a little less money. I'll move it around so we can fudge the, the, the salary cap so we can put pieces around me. And the pieces you put around him this year are Philip Dorsett, um, God, who was even in camp? Like Gunnar Olszewski made the team, you know, was like an undrafted rookie. You know, he's not even on the team anymore. You draft Jacoby Myers and Nikhil Harry. I'm trying to think of even some of the other names they, they brought in. Uh, Demarius Thomas came in during camp. He's a little older and washed up. So they're, they're not exactly bringing in. <laughs> That's what they in, say about me, too. <laughs> they're, not, they're not bringing in guys that Tom Brady can look at and say, okay, this is a guy I can go to target week in and week out, which is why I think he's been so ticked off that they got rid of Antonio Brown because Brown was that kind of talent. And, of course, Gronkowski being gone, And Gronkowski too. being gone. They didn't replace him. And, you know, some will say, hey, that's on Gronk. He waited too long to retire. He didn't give the team the opportunity to really look and draft and go in free agency after somebody like that. But I would also say everybody kind of had an inclination that he might go. Yeah. So you maybe had to, should have started planning for the future earlier. We're talking to Trenny Kuznarek, our sports expert. We'll talk about retiring, uh, you know, rather unexpectedly. This Vontae Davis uh, guy... Retired yep. at halftime. So this was last. This was last year. Last year, Vontae Davis, uh, uh, who was uh, playing for the Bills at the time, um, said that he had kind of been questioning whether or not he still had a love for football and whether or not he wanted to do it anymore. And he walked in at halftime and he said he just had a feeling like I don't want to play anymore. And he, done. He retired at halftime. Took off his stuff. Was like, guys, I'm done. I'm retiring. And he has been out of the game since. But the reason we're talking about him is the Washington Post did a really nice feature on him uh, end of last week about what he's doing now. And he is using his experience, but also the way that he was brought up, you know, single, single parent family, um, having to take care of his brothers and sisters, and in some cases, uh, you know, cousins, and really be, I, I believe both of his parents were in and out of jail, addiction issues. And he's now going into schools in areas just I like the this. ones that he grew up and saying, you know, listen, sure, you can play football, but you got to get an education and there is a way out. And we, we don't have to be limited uh, in the ways that so many people limit. In, in when I say we, and he is talking about African-Americans, in particular black males and black and brown um, males. We're not just who we are athletically. We can do all of these other things. And look what happened to me. But finding sports and finding something outside of yourself is going to help you find that purpose in life. But hey, you can get out of this. You know, you are not mired by your circumstances. Well, talk about being... Uh, 
almost mired by circumstances. He talks in this in this book apparently about how his father barged into the house one day, was bleeding, and the cops yeah. are outside, and then uh, he had to take care of his baby sister and brother. And when his mother had gone missing, mother mother became Drugs. a crack yep. addict, and the grandmother had to take him and six siblings, so that's seven children, and raise them. And his older brother Vernon is now a tight end with the Washington Redskins. Yep, his so, brother plays football as yeah, well. Yeah, so yep. we had two guys that. Um, and I don't know what the rest of them are doing, but but it sounds like Grandma picked up the mantle. Which, and- you know, we're seeing this happen across the board now. I mean, the New York Times just had a piece um, yesterday, I, I think it was in yesterday's New York Times, about the class of 2000 in a small town in Ohio and how many of those yeah. kids oh, have been affected by opioids. And we're seeing this happen more and more, you know, in not just, um, you know, black and brown communities, but in white communities as well, where grandparents are having to parent their grandchildren because their kids are getting hooked on opioids. Um, and this has been happening for a long a, a long time. But it's great to see someone who, um, through sports, found his way out of it. Um, and also, to be quite honest, you know, he looked and he, he tells these kids, okay, this was my vehicle to get out. I was lucky enough to be a good athlete, have all of this money. But he was stingy, stingy with his money. He put it away. He put himself in a financial position that when he was ready to walk away and he didn't want to deteriorate his body and his mind anymore, he was able. And I think that's an important message also to send to these kids. Like just because you find wealth or you find fame, if that is how you get out of whatever situation you're in, uh, it's smart, especially in football, to think about the long haul and setting yourself up to only be in it as long as you need to well, be. Well, maybe in. you could have waited till the end of the game. I mean, that's, that's what my I was only. Say. I mean, leaving at halftime, halftime. is that a little weird. He said he was. He, it, it is a little weird. He said he was spoken to, and that at that yeah. point he just knew he was done. You he heard know? a voice. And, and I will say, I mean, imagine in such a violent sport. Let's say you're sort of half in it in the second half. No, that's a fine you point. You could maybe put your body at risk and take a hit because you're not paying attention, or you're just like you're you're done. You've already walked off you could put somebody else in in a position of danger i mean again i i if that was my team i'd be oh i'd be so mad he if someone did that but i voice i understand Jim, that heard heard i've given all i've got leave this chapter behind yeah someday sometimes you just gotta walk Boston away the library will be on the air the little voice will come into our ear and it won't be that's John why Parker. we're earplugs by the way studio that's why okay so Jim's like it's noon i'm out okay I'm speaking out. of fame and fortune of vante davis you achieve fame and fortune by being an international Olympics broadcaster. Yes, yes. For so much in all seriousness, I never watched curling in my life. For those who don't know, Trenny did a phenomenal job on uh, curling in general, but also the fact that the United States won its first gold yes. medal, the men's thing. So a couple things about the Olympics. We'll get to curling in a second. I, everybody's celebrating the fact that skateboarding is now in the Olympics. I can live with that, by the way. What I cannot live with is the fact There's that there no is no age, age floor. So they're celebrating this Kendra Long, who's 14 years old. Marjorie and I used to talk on commercial radio about how these little young girls, not young women, were doing gymnastics. And when you heard some of them being interviewed, it is totally clear they've had no connection to any real world, any life, any anything. They were just trained almost like in the Soviet Union yeah. to be a, uh, a gymnast from the time they came out of the womb. I am not happy at all. First of all, they do have an age limit now in no, gymnastics, they got, and they yes, raise the 16. You didn't mention the 11-year-old from Brazil. Well, fine. So th- they so, said they could be single digits. What is up with this? So I will say this, and I, I totally get it, and I love the parents in this article who, yeah. are, who make their kid go to sh- They make her go to school. They make her go to dances. They, you know, they're not homeschooling her. They're trying to make it all work so she can have somewhat of a normal childhood. But what I would say, Jim, is even if, they're, even if the age limit is 16 to compete in Olympics like it is for for 
um, gymnastics, and I think it's around the same age for figure skating. If you are an elite athlete in an individual sport and you have Olympic aspirations or the talent That's to make it point. to that level, you're training all the time anyway. So whether or not you're training for Tokyo 2020 or Berlin 2022 at this point, that's the next, or uh, not Berlin, excuse me, Beijing 2022, which is the next Winter Olympics, you're still in these cycles where you're training for junior worlds or world championships, yeah. nationals. You're, I mean, my niece is a nine-year-old, like she's above average. She's probably not going to be in the Olympics. No offense, Elena, if you're listening. She's probably not going to be in the Olympics or anything. But this little girl, my nine-year-old niece is at the gym like four times a week, three or four hours a week, my sister. And then she's got soccer. So that's all, you're, that's all she's doing for level four Wisconsin club gymnastics. Now imagine if she's a nine-year-old like a Simone Biles who they look at and say, she's special. You're in the gym six, seven days a week at nine or 10 years old anyway. If you're the, the Williams sisters in tennis, if you, I mean, having met, and I want to be careful here, but having met a lot of tennis players, figure skaters, gymnasts, uh, to a lesser extent, swimmers and, and runners. But these individual athletes who train from the time that they're young, they're all a little different, guys. Like, they have not had the social interactions, the school, the ups and the downs. Their life has been so tailored towards their sport, whether it's to make the Olympics or not. That I don't know. I sort of feel like, well, if you're going to compete and you're good enough, you might as well win a gold medal because then also maybe maybe you reach a height earlier and you can leave earlier and have some a chance at some sort of normalcy. In your I think life. the solution is to arrest the parents. That's my. <laughs> okay. I'm serious. Right, there's got to be some. You know, can we on a happier note? Speaking of curling, which you elevated to an art form, and you're fine. Uh, and I mean obviously. it. No, you're not. Well, serious. It was really exciting. Uh, Canada has finally uh, decided yes. to pay its women curlers the same as it pays its men curlers, which led me to the obvious question that for our curlers curling get, expert. curlers get paid? No. <laughs> they get paid pretty decent money in I Canada. I mean, it's, it's okay. I mean, you have to keep in mind that so... You know, 150000 So the, the, the way they're paid in Canada is it, it was $300,000 pot for the, the male winners and 165000 for females. Right. And so basically the winning team on a male team, we could say, we'll call it 150 and change. The female team would get something like 53. So it was, all, it was like, or like 60 something. So it was almost half of what they mm. were getting. But keep in mind, there's there's five people on a, uh, a, on a curling okay. team and you're splitting that 150,000. Okay. So at the end of the day, you're not, it certainly isn't like, you know, playing basketball. So how about the United, but no, that wasn't my question actually now, even though it was Do they a good get paid one. in the United Do they States? Get, is it equal pay in the United States? I don't know the, I don't know the answer really? to that. And there's not as many, so a lot of U.S. curling teams, rinks as they're called, um, go to Canada for the highest level of competition. Oh, um, they'll have some bond spiels. I'm just really giving you all some the what? Some bond spiels. That's what it's called. A tournament, a bond spiel. Bon- That's what um, we're having for lunch. It's actually, like a it's like a tournament. A bond oh. spiel oh, is like a tournament. I didn't know that. Um, they'll have some in the United States. I don't know if the, the purses aren't that big. Um, I don't know. Shoot, I should have reached out to USA Curling Next and week. asked. I will. I'll so reach out to Terry Davis this, and ask. Her. Are you aware of the fact that your friend Marjorie Egan actually either went to, she won't tell us where, or participated in a curling event I did. last year? A, li- a Wait, listener last invited year? you? Yeah, two years ago. When the year you were over the Olympics, that was two years ago, was right? Yeah, only two years yeah. ago in February. I, someone, yeah. And why won't you tell us where you went? Because she asked me not I know to tell. where it is, yeah. because I know where they would say, don't tell. Yeah, she here. asked me not to tell, and so I'm honoring so her wishes. It? 
I, I went to a local <laughs> curling place. It was absolutely gorgeous, and I learned how to curl. You did? And did you actually really, curl? It was really fun, It's actually. hard. It's it hard. is sneaky hard. It's hard to try to keep your balance because you're dragging. You've got yes. one, and you've got one leg out oh, behind Marjorie's you. Oh, Marjorie's doing it right now. I'm doing it right now, and you've got wow. your hand extended. And you have to have the, you also have to have the strength to be able to, like, push yourself forward and the flexibility in your hips, which, as a runner, I do not have. And then you've got to have the strength and the accuracy to take your stone and throw it like I, so I learned how to curl right before I went. We did a fun little thing before I went to okay, Korea. Fine. And I, I can tell you where I went. I went, I don't even remember where it was. It was somewhere in like one of the suburbs. I still get real confused by Boston suburbs and I've so lived here for like almost the a M's decade. and the W's, yeah. who can tell. Um, but it was wonderful and they were lovely and it was, be- and we had a great time. But my, my stone didn't even make it to like the junior circle. Like we're like the kindergartners through third graders have to send it. Like I, it's, it. Can looks, you curl lying so down? Much, That's the only thing. No, no, it is so can. much harder than it looks. You can. And you it have to hard. use, like, I, they start you using almost, like, little side walker things that, like, help you with your balance. And you do those. And then you get rid of one. And then you have a stone. And you're on ice. And you're on ice. So, so that and is, you're wearing slippery shoes, You're wearing too, slippery shoes, Because yeah. you need to be able to slide and glide on the ice and yeah. lean forward. It's it harder than it so looks. so much core strength. But, okay. the, but the brooming part isn't that hard. We can all do that. Oh, yeah, the sweeping? Yeah, the sweeping. Sweeping, we call it. Yeah, sweeping. Sorry. Now, what's it called? Brukenstocker? What? What is the thing called? Bonspiel. Bonspiel. Thank you. Okay. So you know what I like about this last story here is I, I actually love this. I never heard of Bill Peters until he was thoroughly <laughs> disgraced, which is a wonderful way to encounter this guy. Explain what happened to the former coach of the Calgary Flames there. Um, so the former now former coach of the Calgary Flames, and I'm bringing up a story because we've now had a number of more incidents, including a Blackhawks uh, assistant coach just this morning has oh, been uh, put on suspension by the Blackhawks. So there seems to be this reckoning in, ho- in hockey. What happened was um, a, a Bill Peters was the head coach of the Calgary Flames, but a while back he was working in the Blackhawks organization. Um, and there was a player who played for uh, a, a young man who played for him from Nigeria, Akeem Alu. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that's exactly our, uh, how you pronounce his name. He was a prospect. And while he was with the team, he talked about how Peters repeatedly used the N-word with him, called him into the room and said, they had rap music on, we're not going to be listening to this N-word music in here, this isn't the type of place, stop acting like an N-word. And he was a young prospect and didn't say anything, but he said the anger built up in him to the point where he then would um, you know, talk back to the coach, and he saw his career ruined, that he kept getting put, he was labeled a difficult player to work with, no one on the team, even people who heard the obscenities didn't always stick up for him because of course you're just trying to keep your job then it comes out that there was another player um, who while with Carolina when Peters was there that Peters verbally and physically abused this player kicking him yeah. kicked him, yelling at him. And all these stories start to come out. And the Calgary Flames, you know, at first just suspended him and said, we're going to take a look at it. And then said, you know, there's just too much here. There's too much there, there. We're relieving you of your duties. And then, of course, even more stuff starts coming out that everyone knew. Rod Brindamore, who I believe is now, and I'm forgetting, uh, now he's the current Carolina head coach, confirmed all these things happening, that he had also heard the rumors about Bill Peters. Well, now today, a guy by the name of Mark Crawford, who is an assistant coach with the Blackhawks, has been relieved of his duties because a handful of players have come out and said, yeah, back when I played for Crawford, he kicked me, he choked me, he yelled at me, he would, he, uh, would make me stand up you know, in front of everyone and just berate me for how I played oh. in front of everyone to undress oh. me. And this is a name I think a lot of people would know. It's now fired Toronto, um, uh, the Toronto uh, Maple Leafs head coach, um, Mike Babcock. 
He has since been fired, but now someone has come out and said a big time, uh, pretty big time player, and I'm trying to find his name because I'm not like the biggest hockey person, so sometimes Go names ahead, escape me. Yeah. Um, but in any, at any rate, uh, this you know, player said that um, he made, that Babcock made him get up in front of his entire team and make a list of his teammates he thought wasn't working. Hard, they weren't working hard enough. So there seems to be in hockey this... I, tradition, I don't know, for lack of a better word, um, you know, this, what's the word I'm looking for? Now I'm blanking. Treating history people of, like history of, history of, that's yeah. not the word I'm looking for either, but whatever, you know what I mean. Yeah. This history of coaches trying to belittle and verbally and physically abuse players in order to get them to do what they want. And I'm wondering, like, how much more of this is going to sort of spiral out of control and what other coaches are going to come up. Mitch Marner is the player. Mitch Marner, thank yeah. you. Wow. Thank you. I never. I didn't that. think. I didn't I know. I, I didn't know. I, I had never really heard of this, and I, you know, I worked around hockey for a little bit, um, but you know, it was like you know, coaches yell at players, right? It, it happens in all sports, but this is a whole nother level. And the one other thing that is important to think about, I know we have to go. A lot of these kids start in juniors, and they yeah. start really, really young, so they are a part of this culture. That's the word I'm looking for, a culture in hockey. Culture. A culture in Thank hockey, you. it seems like, of abuse and something that might need to be looked at at a much larger level. Trini, nice Trini, to see you. Thank you very much. Trini Kuznarek joins us every week. She's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor. Coming up, Boston City Council President Andrea Campbell has a plan to keep City Hall in check. She joins us for that and more next on Boston Public Radio, live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. What's the best way to ferret out corruption in city government? Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell thinks establishing an inspector general could be a start. She joins us for an update on that, her push for safer streets, and how she feels about her term as the city council president now that it's winding down. From there, GBH's executive arts editor, Jared Bowen, gives us his rundown of laced arts and culture events in and around town. And with COP25 underway, has the U.S. fully copped out of its role in fighting climate change? Environmental leader Bill McKibben joins us for his take on this and more. The GOP's pre-buttle to the Democrats' impeachment investigation report defies the facts by exonerating Trump and also confirming that Trump is reshaping the GOP in his own image. We talked to CNN's John King about this and what poll Mm. rendered him speechless on live TV. All that is next on Boston Public Radio. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Eastern Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. We are broadcasting live as we do every Tuesday from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Hello, Jim. Hello, Marjorie. So, what's the best way to deal with corruption in city government? Boston City Council President Andrea Campbell thinks establishing an inspector general for the city would be a start. Yesterday, City Council held a working session on Councillor Campbell's ordinance to establish such a position. She joins us to talk about this, how Boston recently voted (coughs) in the most diverse city council ever, 
and more. Andrea Campbell represents District 4. Congratulations on your re-election, and nice to see you. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. Good to see you guys. Well, you know, I've used this line many times before, but why not one more time? I mean, Boston City Council used to be kind of a big joke, but things have changed dramatically. Yes, they and have. And not only in the seriousness of the people that are running for office and winning office, but in the diversity in the council. So uh, what, what do you think about the last most recent election? I mean, obviously you won, uh, but a pretty impressive group. I mean, it's amazing. I, mean, I was always humbled to lead um, as council president, you know, the first black woman uh, the most diverse uh, body in the history of the city of Boston, and we've just expanded that. So now we have eight women coming um, onto the council, so we are going eight to be women. in the majority. I know it feels good, right? It feels really good. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, we have, uh, depending on how the recount goes, regardless, our first Latina to serve on the Boston City Council, which is exciting, but then, of course, I think we should be reminded we still have work to do. And then the first openly LGBTQ uh, woman who was coming on. So it is very exciting. Um, we will also have uh, a gentleman who's Latino. So, I mean, this is what the city of Boston is, um, the demographics look like. And so our council will reflect that, which is really exciting. Uh, uh, who are you supporting to succeed you? I don't know yet. So I will tell you... Um, Internally, I'm having some conversations. There's one colleague in particular that I think would do an excellent job. Who? Um, I'm not telling you that. Okay. because and, and the only reason I'll say this is um, I think, you know, when choosing the council president and looking at my own process, the best way to do it is internal with respect to colleagues. You have one-on-one -on -one conversations with every colleague more than one usually conversation. Sometimes they're pleasant, sometimes they're uncomfortable, but you share your ideas um, and then you make it work. It's, only, it's probably the only instance where we can actually have conversations amongst each other without violating open meeting law or anything else. Um, so there's some good candidates and one in particular I think would be great, but I'm not naming him. Okay, so not naming him? <laughs> okay, so uh, how much res residual bad feeling comes out of the process? I have to say, yeah, as you know, I was a one-term city councilor in Cambridge. There was one city councilor, and I would maybe argue one and a half, who practically didn't speak to me for two years because I did not support their candidacy. We elect the mayor there, and the mayor mm -hmm. is ceremonial because the city manager runs the city. Uh, there was really hard feelings, not just yeah. directed at me, but if you choose X over Y, That's right. Why remembers? This, how much of a problem is that? It could be a problem, and I think it becomes a problem like that when the media gets involved or the public in some way tries to influence. Um, I saw that when I came on, when Wu and O'Malley were going back and forth, and I was a new counselor. Um, but when we did it um, in my process, everything was internal. I had no media involved until I actually became council president mm -hmm. and had the support of every single colleague. That's when I announced it publicly. That's the most robust way to do it. Um, and I'm hoping that we actually do that this time around. I mean, there's been uh, some hiccups, I think. But at the end of the day, in order to avoid that tension or having to start our new session with a healing process, um, we need to be able to talk to each other as colleagues. We won't always agree. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's a, an administrative role. It's not like the Speaker of the House in terms of your power. You represent this institution, but everyone is, can add something to the agenda. Everyone can put forth any issue they want, use that platform as freely as they want. Um, so the, the sometimes comparison of council president to Speaker of the House, I think, 
um, is not a good one. Well, I want to compare it to something else uh, for a second. While every month that Marty Walsh is here, we say, when are you going to endorse Joe Biden? He says he hasn't made up his mind. Joe Biden's a good friend of his. I surely am not speaking for the mayor, but I would be shocked if he did not endorse Joe Biden. And if Joe Biden ended up being president of the United States, I would not be shocked if Marty Walsh ended up with a position with the president. Joe Biden. And the reason I bring that up is that makes the position of city council president a little more important than it might be in normal times. Is that is not a fair statement? Possibly. I mean, there's a lot of ifs and oh, of course there are. And all I know of that. that. Yeah. I, I will tell you, I, I, I'm not a supporter of Joe Biden. I don't think he should be the next president of the United States. Um, I think it should be a woman. I think this country is ready for a woman. Um, I'm a supporter of Kamala Harris. I've come out publicly. I've done things with her. Um, you know, I, I know her from my UCLA law school days, being in California. She's been a public servant her entire career. Um, if anything, I think she is the only candidate, Democratic nom- nominee, who can bring together various coalitions across all these artificial labels we use to beat Donald Trump. What do you think and, of the New York, uh, New York Times pieces? Oh, I'm so really done tough. with the polling in the media, particularly with respect to the woman candidates and especially with respect to Kamala Harris. I was in Iowa on the ground at that dinner, um, and I was blown away. I left the stadium. I walked back to my hotel. I still had goosebumps because she was that powerful. She had supporters from other people's camps give her a standing ovation. I come back to Boston. I look at the news. It, It was like, was I there? Did I make this up? The media has not given her her due. Every day there's an obituary for her candidacy, and then you, you see people who really should have obituaries because they don't have a chance at all in becoming the nominee, and you don't see anything. And so that standard that she's held to as a woman, and particularly as a black woman in this race, is awful. In the polling piece, you have a poll that's dictating things when they interview 500 people that may not even be reflective of the demographics of the electorate. Um, and no, you know, the layperson isn't going through the weeds of these polls, um, and yet we're putting it out there in the media space as the, the, the be-all, end-all. Well, tell her we have a big audience in New so Hampshire I'm next time Kamala, you talk to her. Join, <laughs> I'm way, saying join the K-Hive. Well, join and, Boston Public Radio, and she may yeah. get a bump up north. Well, I think where you were going, too, with Marty Walsh, uh, whether he joins the Biden, you know, there is a Biden... Uh, I have no idea what his plans are. No, I don't, we but don't there, either. But there is, a lot, there, there is a lot of talk just about your running for mayor and also Michelle oh, there is? Wu running Well, we for asked you sure last month and you didn't say no. Heard it. Yeah. Is there any, any, um, anything you'd like to say about any that? Any updates? <laughs> no updates. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I, I've said it here and other places, my constituents, my donors, my supporters um, definitely see in me the potential, obviously, to go beyond the city council and to use that skill set. I know one thing, I am passionate about the city of Boston. You know, I'm born and raised in this city, BPS kid, I love it. Um, and there's a lot of work to do, but the thing I love the most about my job right now is I represent largely Dorchester, Mattapan, a little bit of Jamaica Plain and Rosendale, and I say it is where all of the inequities are alive and well. So I have to take on the very hard stuff, the, you know, the neighborhoods that don't have green space, transportation, deserts, of course, climate change, lack of quality schools, lack of affordable housing, the list is long. And so I say if we get that right, everything else is easy. So let's talk about one of the inequities. Let's go down a list of things happening in the city council, some of which are at your initiative. Uh, we still do not have a pot shop in uh, Boston. And I know the city council, I think unanimously, voted to change the rules, I believe with the support of Mayor Walsh, uh, uh, that make it more likely (coughs) that 
those who own marijuana uh, stores, recreational marijuana stores, are more representative of the city mm -hmm. uh, than most of the awardees have been around Massachusetts. What'd you do? You're drinking water. In terms, I know. I'm What'd you guys do to change the rules? So we made it, you know, we based it in equity. And I, first of all, I have to give Councilor Janie yeah. the credit Jane, on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, she spearheaded this effort. She didn't get um, what she wanted in her original proposal, but she pushed and pushed and pushed. And I think it's a great example of how you have to compromise when working with other colleagues, including the mayor, for support. It was a 12 to 1 vote. Um, but the goal, the, the legislation allows for the council to play a role in these, this application process for recreational, like we did in medicinal. Mm -hmm. It allows for greater equity, particularly for women and people of color. I will say there was an approval in my district of an applicant. Pure Oasis is in my district. He was on my show. Kobe exactly. Evans, so right. he's in my district. Who, by the way, to his credit, was awarded a license and has criticized the process for not yep. being fair, particularly to other people of color. Good for him, by the way. That and, takes... and I appreciated him because he, he went through a robust process. He door knocked, right? Not just sort of in the, you know, went to the meetings. He did a lot of work to make it happen. But he keeps coming back to give us things to think about in order to ensure that we have greater mm -hmm. equity in the process and that people of color and women, but especially neighborhoods um, that have been disproportionately affected by the, you know, the war on drugs and where people are still sitting in jail for marijuana mm -hmm. offenses, that they have an opportunity to get into this industry, which is a billion-dollar industry. Um, so kudos to Councilor Janey for leading the effort. I just saw my role as council president not only supporting the ordinance itself, but navigating the process to make, it sure, to make sure it happened this term before we wrapped up. Well, you know, one of the things that th it seems to me is really important about this is that um, before this was a, a behind closed doors, as this Globe piece, uh, Dan Adams uh, piece points out about this, that, that Walsh officials were deciding who was going to get these licenses. Now this is going to make this much more of a public process, which is a really big deal because uh, the oper the the, the, the there could be a lot of bad things going on when you do things behind closed doors. Well, I mean, everything, this is, you know, as council president, the biggest reason I wanted to bring the council through this racial equity training, six months training, was not just to talk about the historical context in the city of Boston <clears throat> when it comes to race um, and marginalization of certain communities, which informs where we are today. You need to know that history in order to close gaps and, and, and get rid of systemic and persistent inequities. But it's also around process. Nothing that we do in government should be relational. You should be a lay person walking down the street, be able to walk mm -hmm. into City Hall and go into any department, figure out how to do something. The process should be clear, whether it's pulling a permit, doing something with the zoning board, um, something in animal control, right? You shouldn't have to, you know, who do you know? How much did you give? Did you vote? Did you donate? In order to get something done. The government is the people's government, right? We use taxpayer dollars um, to get things done. And so the training was all about talking about that, but then bringing it into practice. We still have a lot more work to ensure that that's the case. I think the marijuana process is just one example of it changed numerous times, but now we have an ordinance that establishes some standards and, and expectation. The same should be true for everything else that we do in government. How does that, what you just described, that process, relate to the Civics Leader, Civic Leaders Summit thing that you coordinated, oh, was, you led? It was, oh my goodness. So first of all, I wasn't there because I was in a hospital bed. <laughs> yes. You should explain why. Yeah, I'm expecting baby number yes. two. My doctor was yeah. like, um, I had to go in at 2 a.m. And I, I said, 
but do you think I could go to the EMK <laughs> Kennedy Institute in the JFK <laughs> Library to do the open remarks to my all-day civic summit? She was like, yeah, no. <laughs> so, oh. so I did this voice memo. I'm like, I'm fine monitoring, but I'm fine. I'll get out. But it was an all-day summit where we brought civic leaders who volunteer their time running civic associations across the city of Boston together to thank them. It was a networking opportunity. We ensured that people had free business cards, right, leveling the playing field. We had robust, uh, substantive workshops all day around equity, how you navigate city halls, city departments, um, all led mainly by residents from the city of Boston, how you organize, um, how do you get youth involved in your civic association, what does succession planning look like. We had incredible sponsors for this event. And the whole goal was building on work that I do in my district, which says everything that I do on behalf of my constituents is informed by what I hear on the ground. So the issues I tackle is what I hear from the constituents themselves. And then I give them the credit for the solutions. Um, and they have great solutions. My people don't just know what the problems are. They want to be at the table co-creating. So this like what? summit... Like what? So, for example... Um, um, Transportation. So when we're thinking about slow streets and the application process and how we figure out resident permit parking, so how we deal with transportation, speeding, and all of that. We had a meeting in our district where folks are saying, we don't want a slow streets application process that pits neighborhoods against each other. It should be a citywide policy. So we're advocating for that after hearing that from our constituents. We want folks in, a, in our neighborhood to work together on issues around development. And, and to come up with community benefit packages together, not dictated by a developer in a silo, but coming together. So these ideas and brainstorming ideas we take and we use. Um, I'm working on, obviously, issues of education because we hear that quite a bit. Um, I talk a lot about criminal justice reform because the neighborhoods in which I represent see a large number of folks coming out of these institutions, um, and they want us to be talking about it. So I think everything we do, we do well if it's informed by the people, but most importantly, the people living the inequities we talk about need to be at the table. And these civic leaders do that in many respects. And so this summit was a way to say, how do we make that the foundation of the work? Um, and not just here and there, but literally residents themselves co-designing policy, not us coming up with some ideas in City Hall and then coming back and saying, this is what we're going to do. In the summit, we had over 400 people show wow. up on a Saturday. We well, actually had 399 show up because you didn't make it. I forget. <laughs> so at your own summit. Okay, so, and you're well. Yes, you're well? I'm well. Great. I'm lingering cough, but okay. I'm okay. Uh, why does the city need an inspector uh, general, Andrea Campbell? We need one. We need one. We need one. So, why? Um, I often, so I heard about this idea when I went to a couple of conferences for other cities as a council president. Baltimore has it, Chicago, actually Chicago, the mayor just got rid of the police commissioner, uh, commissioner yeah. based on a report she received from the inspector general. And so we're talking about, my constituents included, the zoning process, the bribery charge, now BPD with the overtime issues. And I, I always want to say we have hardworking city employees and Boston is in some corrupt government where people are, are going to work every day to, to do awful things. Um, but we need an office that is disconnected from the mayor, disconnected from City Hall, that is objective in its stance, truly independent, to really look at rooting out not just waste, fraud, corruption, and not just from a reactive space, but literally proactively 
looking at all the policies that we put in place to ensure that folks, residents have access, ensuring good governance, transparency, accountability, that we're actually living up to those standards. It's very difficult to do that from sometimes the council space. It's very difficult to do that, I think, from the mayor's space. Or, for example, we want the mayor to do something and he, maybe it's priority number 10, for us it's priority number one. And I'll give you one example that came up yesterday in the working session we had. A group of counselors, mainly women counselors, have been talking about some issues at the fire department. A group of women coming forward and saying they've experienced discrimination, yeah. other concerns, it's been in the news and the media. And the, we hire an outside legal counsel determined by the mayor. And so I say, let's stop doing that. Let's save taxpayer dollars and bring that money internally because we don't inform that decision. But an investigation that is done by some law firm somewhere, no public space, no updates, they're not guaranteed, uh, mandated to tell anyone anything. They then give us a report of recommendations that would improve this department. That report sits there. An inspector general could say, not only am I gonna charge you less than that law firm, but everything I do is going to be public. Everything that I do is going to give updates to the public. It's going to be a public process. In addition to that, they can go into our department um, and hopefully have built relationships with our departments to do that. And then when they do have a report, those recommendations are followed. Right now, we have a fire department that didn't follow all of those things. And so we're trying to struggle to push, and, and it shouldn't be at the whim of anybody. Um, so I think it's the right thing to do to ensure transparency, good governance, and accountability to make sure we're not wasting taxpayer dollars. You know, from the little bit that I read, uh, City Council, President uh, Campbell, uh, it, I didn't hear that much opposition on the merits, but rather mm -hmm. sort of backdoor opposition, which may be on the merits, but they don't want to say it, I don't know, that we don't really need it because it's duplicative, that there's a state inspector general and he, it's a man, right? Yes. He uh, has jurisdiction over the Commonwealth, which includes Boston, so we don't, is that the only public argument against this thing, that we don't need it? No one's saying that, I mean, we don't need it because it's already being done. No one's arguing against the content. Are they or are they? No, I mean, I think some people, whether it's the Finance Commission and the State Inspector oh, General Commission, saying that it is duplicative, and I say, I push back on that. I said, no. They can't, for example, when talking to the State Inspector General, you, a, a local Inspector General can look at all of our departments, go into every single one. The state has to almost be invited in or be called. Um, I had a meeting with the state inspector general who said he wanted to go into BPS, for example. That didn't happen. And I said, you should go into BPS. We have a $120 million transportation budget, and we just hired a BPS transportation consultant for like $50,000 because it's not working out. I want the Office of Inspector General at the local level to have such great relationships that before that decision is made, there's someone who's in an independent space to do some assessment. The state IG can't do that. They do do prevention and training, and so the ordinance is designed that this local person would work in partnership. We see it in other states that have an IG at the state level, county and city level working in partnership. FinCom, they do great work. It is removed in many respects. I mean, obviously, it's appointed by the governor from 1909. Um, and their jurisdiction doesn't go into these policy practices, recommendations, you know, the fire department report. They said, well, someone could call us. I don't want someone to always have to call. The question is, how do we get someone who can proactively always be looking at these things and work in partnership with them? So I, I just don't... Um, 
I'm not sold on this argument that it's duplicative because for me, it's not. And by the way, when we ask them candidly around the zoning or other things that have come up recently in terms of where an investigation is warranted, State IG and the Finance Commission were not involved. Andrea Campbell, this will be your last time here as City Council President. You'll be here in other capacities oh, in the future. thank you. I would look forward to coming but back. But you only have a minute. Uh, what are you proudest of in this capacity? Literally a minute. I committed to two things. One was bringing my council through a racial equity training. We did that with all outside funding. It was a fight, but I had foundations who took a risk on me. Six months training that I think changed the perspective on how we do the work. Um, every organization and institution, particularly in government, needs to go through these types of trainings to understand uh, marginalizations of communities in the historical context and where they work. The second is technology. Um, we have an RFP out there now to finally get the council um, a case management system to be able to do our work because, believe it or not, there are people still using manila folders in 2019. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Um, and so it only took some years, but it's moving forward. Um, and then lastly, to have that platform uh, is inc was an incredible it, opportunity. I mean, I still have it. Obviously, there's still work to be done. We still have council meetings. But I got to raise the profile of neighborhoods that don't get talked about enough through a positive lens, and namely Mattapan, where I live, and Dorchester. These are great neighborhoods doing incredible work where people um, love each other. They show up to volunteer for their local civics. They want to be a part of the solutions. To use this platform, because people just let me in. They didn't let me in before. Now ah. they do. Um, to raise the profile for those neighborhoods right. has been incredible. Great to Thank see you. you. Thank you guys for having me. Happy holidays. To you too. Boston City Council President Andrea Campbell represents District 4. Uh, thank you very, very much, Councilor, for coming in. Coming up, WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen. He's next on Boston Public Radio, broadcasting from the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan, broadcasting from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Joining us to go over the latest arts and culture events in town and beyond is Jared Bowen. Jared is WGBH's executive arts editor. I know that because I'm reading it, and he's host of the TV series Open Studio. Hello, Jared Bowen. Hello there. <coughs> Hello, Jared Bowen. Well, yesterday we talked with our listeners about whether you should watch things in the movie theater or all the time or watch things on TV all the time. I guess The Irishman was started briefly in the theaters and then quickly moved to Netflix, put us to the test. What do you think of the movie? Well, I heard your conversation yesterday, and it was my plan because I didn't get to see it in the theater. I thought I would just turn it into an installment series <laughs> for yeah. myself. However, I thought it was so good that I, if I could have, I would have watched it all in one fell swoop at home. I had to go out, so I had to interrupt it, but I, I thought it was a really, really fantastic film, uh, even on the small screen. I know that everybody has, has the push, see it on the big screen. It's magisterial. Uh, it's one of his later masterpieces. That would be Martin Scorsese, uh, but I think at home it's, it's it's really fantastic. Okay, let's play a little clip, and then we can get into The Irishman a little bit, because, as you know, I saw it lying down at the <laughs> theater. Uh, this is Jimmy Hoffa, obviously played by Al Pacino, dressing down Tony Provenzano, uh, played by Stephen Graham, I guess, for showing up late to a meeting. I never waited for anyone who was late more than 10 minutes in my life. I'd say 15. 15 right. No, 10. I don't think so. Ten's not enough. You have to take traffic into account. That's that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm taking traffic into account. That's why it's ten. I still say fifteen. No, ten. Fine, we we disagree on that. Well, how oh. about twelve and a half minutes? 
There we go. Hey, Twelve and a half. In the middle, right it's in the middle. Price. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, more than ten. He's saying something. He's saying something to me. No, I'm here. By the way, that was uh, Robert De Niro playing Frank Sheeran in the middle there. And by the way, that led to a serious confrontation between uh, the two guys over 10, 15 and beyond. You know, uh, my problem with this, and Scorsese's brilliant, De Niro and Pacino, and and, uh, Joe Pesci is beyond belief in this movie. And he wasn't hysterical like he usually is in the other movies, you know? Can I be? Yeah. Yeah. Can I be? It's too long. I mean, it's just, I don't mean it's too long. Because I had things to do. I mean, it's too long. And I'm the last person, well, I guess I'm not, to uh, ever critique a Scorsese work because I love what he does. I love virtually everything he's ever done. He could have done it in two hours and 15 minutes. And I think the conscious thing was I'm making this epic at the end of my career, so it's got to be endless. And I think that detracted from it, frankly. Uh, I think to some degree that's true. So here, Martin Scorsese, we we see filmmaking changing now because Amazon and Netflix have gotten into the game. This is Netflix, uh, which means that filmmakers like Martin Scorsese suddenly have a big budget. They have a lot of studio support behind them, unlike before, so they can make the film that they want to make. I will say that... I didn't think it was too long. I certainly was mindful of that, and, and also, again, disclosure, I, I watched it in two installments, but I thought it had such a great rhythm that it really tugged me along, which is kind of an apropos description, because this is sort of this road trip journey with flashbacks about uh, Frank Sheeran and how he rose up from being a truck driver to being a hitman, and then ultimately a, a, a conciliary of Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, and it's all based on a book, and uh, you kind of have the sense that some of it is fabulous and that he knows how Jimmy Hoffa came to his end. Uh, but I thought we saw some extraordinary performances here, the best of Robert De Niro that I feel like I've seen in years, and Joe Pesci, just give him an Oscar now. Joe Pesci okay, was so wonderful, and so was Pacino. He was. As, as Hoffa, he was, he was hysterical, actually, as, as Hoffa. You know what I could have used a little bit more of, though? The inner life of Frank Sheeran. I wanted to know: Is he just a sociopath? Because he, in the, in the beginning, he's he shoots these guys when he's in the army without compunction. Is that the the message we're supposed to take away from him? Or? But, he, but here's where I think you get the inner life. You get it in one character, his daughter, and who's played in her adult life by Anna Paquin, who barely has any lines, but she is the one who's watching him, literally watching him from afar, and she knows exactly what he's doing and the look on her face as she not understands, but just processes her father right in front of him so he knows exactly what his family thinks of him. I thought that was so telling. Do you that see the bank teller scene yet, or you haven't gotten up to that? You're not done yet. you see the bank teller scene with her? So. Okay, well, I won't give it away. Okay. Let me say two things. One, I'm, there's a, I'm a, at 45 minutes from the there end. There is oh. a fabulous piece <laughs> in the, uh, I think, the Washington Post <clears throat> last weekend that says that uh, Scorsese is always criticized for no serious female characters. And whoever wrote the piece, it's a woman, says the most important character in this movie, actually, was the woman you just mentioned, Sheeran's daughter, who, as this writer says, is the moral center of the whole film and judging her father, which I totally agree with her and you. That's one. Two, not to destroy the moment for any of you. I had Jack Goldsmith on last week, who's a Harvard Law professor, whose stepfather was the guy who drove uh, in the movie drove uh, uh, Hoffa to his execution. Uh, And Goldsmith effectively uh, demonstrates, one, after years of research, that his father did not drive him to an execution. Two, that Frank uh, Sheeran Sheeran did not execute him, as is in this movie. But in fact, that the FBI and Goldsmith are convinced that a low-level Detroit mobster, who is since dead, so they're not naming him, 
uh, is the execution, which doesn't take away from the art of the movie, but I'm just saying for those who've been wondering what happened to Jimmy Hoffa in the last 45 years, uh, uh, it's not clear that Scorsese went to the right source. So that's I just want to point out that yeah. a woman having no lines in the movie except for like one or two is not exactly a broad... I don't a agree with broad, you. I, I would say Lorraine Bracco in Goodfellas was much more of a full Maybe so, character. but she's great. When you, finish, when you see this one, it's a really quick scene... When she's working at a bank and Frank Sheeran shows up okay. late in his life, it is really something. Okay, I'll wait for the bank scene yeah, for, to, but, for but my full judgment. And my final <laughs> thing, I will say, Marjorie, I was troubled by this as I was watching the film. I was thinking, God, the women have no lines here whatsoever. And, and I'm still wrestling with whether that was the right move. But it is so impactful that it, it, uh, the way I remember it, 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 I think it was a smart decision. Okay, okay. In any case, we're talking to Jared Bone. So, Jared, let's go to the theater uh, uh, a little bit. Merrimack Repertory. Uh, that's in, is that in Lowell? Is that's that where in Lowell, it is? yep. Okay, what's there? Uh, they have the Wiccans Christmas at Pemberley, which is a <laughs> very nice holiday like Christmas that. fair. Uh, last year they presented Miss Bennett at Christmas at Pemberley, which of course springs off of the world of Pride, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen's world. It was their highest selling show ever, so this year they followed it up with the Wickhams. Uh, and so this place takes place, it's a modern play set, uh, of course, during that time, set two years after Pride and Prejudice. Prejudice, imagining these characters, and, and I didn't get to see Miss Bennett last year, but I understand that's the sort of upstairs world of Pride and Prejudice, uh, Mr. Darcy's Pemberley, and then uh, this Wickham's takes us downstairs, and so we see the servants trying to get ready for Christmas, and then a roguish character comes in after a night of brawling and drunkenness, and that would be uh, George Wickham, and uh, all panic and, and mayhem ensues as this nefarious character re-enters the world and you see uh, Darcy and his wife and her sister all try to wrestle with his re-emergence. So this is this is an original play done off of Jane Austen. I mean, that's what it, it's kind of a fascinating Post-pride concept. Post-Pride and Prejudice, is that right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it is it is pretty neat because you don't see you don't see Elizabeth and Darcy in their married life in Pride and Prejudice, right? I think we just end with the decision to get married, don't we? Uh, is this where I fully confess that I've actually not read it? I think and so. I, so I can't remember from the adaptations I've seen. I think either. it's the end, but I, I don't think we see them in their married life. He's brooding for much of Pride and Prejudice. But can we agree on this? It's just like Martin Scorsese. Uh, uh, has too little of a focus on women. Jane Austen, far too much. Would you not, <laughs> would you not agree? By the way, I should have said a minute ago, Jack Goldsmith's fabulous book on Jimmy Hoffa is called In Hoffa's Shadow, and it's really worth a read. Is, is Sharon a real person? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh he, yeah, he I didn't is. even yeah. know he was a real yeah. person. Yeah, he is a real person. Oh, wow. So it's amazing that an Irish guy managed to infiltrate, Right. An Irish guy who looks like Robert De Niro, by That's right. He is sort of mixed there, I guess. So tell us about Oliver. I love Oliver. I remember when I was a kid. Yeah, this just opened at New Repertory Theater in Watertown. It's playing through December 29th. And I should mention that Wickham's at Merrimack Repertory Theater is playing through the 22nd. Uh, Oliver is a classic tale, of course, adapted from the Dickens classic. This is a musical. It premiered in London in 1960, became an Oscar-winning movie in 1968, uh, but follows this little orphan boy as he's sold off into a, into a, a couple that adapt him as a funeral follower, and then he's taken 
into a family, but along the way he runs into the artful Dodger and under the spell of Fagin as a group of pickpockets. I will say this is a fairly uneven production. Some of the musical numbers truly, really, and I mean this, sing. Uh, they're very well imagined. Uh, the director here, who is a new artistic director of New Repertory Theater, Michael J. Bobbitt, has taken his inspirations from Tim Burton and Edward Gorey, so it's kind of a, oh, a little bit of a darker Victorian London. Uh, and so great musical numbers, but also some of the scenes feel a little bit sluggish as it moves along. Uh, and I think there's been some trimming here, so it all, almost becomes a little difficult to, to follow the story. However, you have these big, rousing musical numbers. It is a great holiday favorite. Uh, and the, the star is Oliver, is this charming little boy, and uh, it makes it uh, very enlightening to see him. I can sing Oliver, by the way. I'm not going to do it. But I have. Oh, why don't and you give I us a few no, bars, I've, Jim? Have you ever seen her on stage, by the way? I, when I was a kid, I saw yeah, it. Yeah, I saw her as younger, too. I love the stage. music. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great music. It's great music. So I, I'm dying to know about this Worcester Art Museum uh, display, as they call it in the headline in the Globe, the unflinching look at maternity and childbirth. It makes the point in the story, we see a million depictions of death. We see very few too. depictions yeah. of, of birth. So this is not just... Uh, nudes of pregnant women, but scenes from the delivery room? Well, this is everything. This, I think, <clears throat> is really an extraordinary show at the Worcester Art Museum. It's very small, but incredibly impactful. And just as you say, Marjorie, throughout art, art history, if you think about it, you've rarely seen any depictions of pregnancy, uh, which wasn't something I missed until it had been brought to my attention. Then I realized, of course. And so here in this show, uh, we're, we're met with this image of the pregnant woman from 1931 by Otto Dix, who is a German expressionist painter. He is somebody who had a very, very difficult life. He was a, a machine gunner in World War I. Uh, he was labeled a degenerate artist by the Nazis in Germany, uh, later taken on as a prisoner of war. So he is somebody who experienced really the worst of life and depicted that a lot in his art. And so we see the span of life and death in his work and his fascination with pregnancy. So we see the span of his returning to this subject matter over the years, notably in this Again, pregnant woman from 1931, and then pregnant woman from 1966, which is actually his daughter, Katerina. This is very realistic. Uh, these are depictions of women in the full throes of pregnancy, nude, standing there before him, or seated there before him. Uh, we see other d illustrations, depictions that he's done. But what they've done here, too, is paired this with the work of Carmen Winant. Uh, and she is a contemporary artist who put together 480 slides with six projectors. And so you walk into the next gallery and you see all of these images of pregnancy, of giving birth. They're very graphic. They're very direct. I appreciated it because I realized, as somebody who's never been in, in a delivery room, as somebody who hasn't been very preoccupied with this in my lifetime. These are images, these are sensibilities, these are themes that I have never seen. And I thought it was so fascinating to see this contemporary, this a woman artist's contemporary look at pregnancy and what it means for the human body and what it means to be a woman and to reproduce compared with uh, Otto Dix. It's, it's a fascinating show. You know, continuing with the theme that uh, we've talked to you about for the last few minutes, I think you'd agree, <coughs> Marjorie, far too little depiction of men in these, uh, in this... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've never been to the Worcester Art Museum, but I've actually heard great things about it. What, what's the deal with the museum? It, that, that museum is an absolute treasure. I, I try to drive people there as much as possible because I think they are doing such really fabulous things. Uh, they, 
I always like to remind people they came up at the same time as a Museum of Fine Arts because here in Boston you had this thriving wealthy community, the same in Worcester. So you had two museum collections that were being built. Worcester had a different tra trajectory, so its collection isn't as big, but it still has all the foundational works of art, and the Rembrandt, I mean, all of the masterpieces that you might expect. But I think because they're in Worcester, they can also take chances, and they can go in different directions and explore things that you might not otherwise see. So Marsha Lagerway is the curator here, and she has done extraordinary work in, in convening this show, recognizing that it's subject matter that hasn't been touched, recognizing that, in, at least for Otto Dix's time, and maybe even ours, this is a subject matter that has been kind of taboo in the art world. It's a re there's a reason you've never seen it on art world, in, on, on art walls in museums. Uh, so she traveled to Germany for the show. But I think these are the kinds of shows that you see at the Worcester Art Museum where go full throttle, do what you want. We can experiment. We can, we can do this here. You know, I was thinking before when I was reading about this, the only really depictions of pregnant w women I've seen widely distributed were Demi Moore and Beyonce. Exactly. Remember yep. Demi Moore was the cover of, of Vanity yep. Fair and Beyonce when they were very, very pregnant and they were incredibly gorgeous uh, photographs What's of both women and they were so sexy. It's so funny you say that because I was thinking about that. I remember when that Demi Moore cover on Vanity Fair came out. Remember that the supermarkets made them cover up. Yeah, it was so scandalous. Right, yeah. yeah, you couldn't show. And it, 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 all you saw were her, was her belly, really, because yeah. she had her hands right. over her, her breasts. Yes, it was a, a side shot, I think. But yeah, it made it me wonder if that were to come out today, would the same thing happen? And I'm not sure we've evolved enough that that still wouldn't engender the same kind of controversy and conversation about it. We're talking to uh, Jared Bone. So, Jared, and you know, last... Our last deal together was at the Gardener. I just was. What happened to that? Why aren't we supposed to be doing those, uh, those things yeah, for television? Our, our mandates, yes. Our mandates. In any case, our last mandate was at the Gardener, which I love, but, uh, and which was huge fun. But, but uh, this artist in residence thing. I didn't even know it. Nor did I till you told me about it recently. I think it is so exciting. Tell us about the program and then what they're doing with some of the former artists in residence there. Well, one of the great things about the, uh, the Gardner Museum is that is stemming from Isabella Stewart Gardner's own time, she would have artists come and stay and work. She was a big patron, so she was a person in that community, so people like John Singer Sargent, uh, you know, Henry James, they all circulated in her world. Well, one of the things that Anne Hawley did as director of the museum uh, was, for, for about more than 20 years, was to create this artist in residency program whereby they would bring in artists who can actually live in the museum. They have an apartment there that was built when the museum was expanded a number of years ago. Uh, and so they have the ability to just roam the museum, go through archives, this. look at the pieces on the wall, be there at night and see things that we might all, not all see, uh, and, and do whatever they want to be in the museum and then tease out their art and their stories from it. So to celebrate this artist in residency program, they have a new show called In the Company of Artists, which is on view through January 20th. And they sort of have a greatest hits of some of the artists who've been there throughout uh, their more than 20 years now. People like Rachel Perry, Sophie Cal, Barty Kerr. Uh, and this is a small show in their, their modern gallery, but I love to see how artists go into this museum, which really never changes, per Mrs. Gardner's will, and make us look at it in different ways. Uh, for for example, example, Barty Kerr, uh, uh, her work is Casts of Sex Workers. Um, it's a sculpture where we see all of these sex workers just in white casts, seated, their eyes are closed, their faces are cast downward. You're looking at them, you feel almost like you're violating their space. It's very impactful, but... Her, she took that from the death masks that she saw at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. So that's where she followed that oh. thread. 
Rachel Perry has created these works of, of uh, using Braille punch. Uh, she counted 445 halos in the Garden Museum's collection. So she evokes those halos through these Braille punches and this very ethereal work. So it's just fun for me, especially as someone who's in that museum quite a bit, to, to be forced to look at it differently. And, and we should also say, uh, when we went there, we went to that fabulous restaurant, Cafe G, is that yes, what it's called? Yes, Which is spectacular. Oh, is that in the glass thing uh, now, the new addition to the Garden Museum? Great, which is the chef I know. is great. It's the beautiful. service is great. The whole thing is great. So do other museums, I love this concept. You know, we could have radio producers in residence. Just have our <laughs> staff sleep at GBH. Or maybe we th- could have a slumber party here uh, at the ex- Boston Public Library. <laughs> so do what other- do you think? We could see Jim in his foot pajamas, little footsies. <laughs> I hear they're spectacular. We could have movie viewing. You can finally watch the last 45 minutes of exactly. the Irishman. So do other <laughs> museums have something like this, or is this a unique uh, Gardner deal? I, I think they do, but I'm, I don't know of another, at least local museum, that has a program as strong and as solid and with as much support as the Gardener. How exciting would it be if you're totally into something to be able to like be fully immersed 24-7 in the deal? I think it's just great. In any so, case, we, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, this is a fascinating story about what's going on at the MFA in terms of so-called correcting the story about ancient Nubia. Tell us. Yeah, this is very, very interesting. So the, the MFA has the largest collection of Nubian art outside of what is now present-day Sudan. And the narrative for most of art history has been all of the greatest uh, art and culture and civilization from that era was produced by the Egyptians. Uh, And this is how we look at that area of the world today, is the legacy of the Egyptians. but for 3,000 years, Nubia was this thriving kingdom uh, that, that had a, a kingdom, produced culture, produced art, produced jewelry, all of this that you'll see on view at the MFA. Um, but not only did they lead, they conquered. They were a strong civilization. But the narrative that has been written is because this was a civilization that was black, that they weren't as intelligent as the Egyptians and couldn't produce as the Egyptians had. So anything that came out of Nubia had to have had the influence of the Egyptians. Partly, that comes from the MFA itself. The MFA, led by George Reisner in 1913 to about 1932, undertook a lot of excavation of Sudan, and and a lot of what we see now in terms of their holdings came from this study, which yielded these unbelievable treasures and understanding of the culture, but the narrative was written as I just described. So the MFA, of course, is now taking a new look at this and acknowledging their role in creating this narrative. They do this through wall text, through the interviews that they have given, but saying, no, this is a culture that needs to be examined on its, on its own and celebrated uh, for what it contributed to our, our world, our society, our civilizations. And obviously this can't be separated from the sort of context in which I assume most people are looking at this, is namely the crap that happened there what was it in spring was it spring and what 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 exactly where are i know they picked what a director of inclusion i actually think i met her at the bso a couple of months ago are are they still making progress on that front after that thing with the middle schoolers well i think what they're waiting for now is uh, there are two investigations one is uh, i think the, if I remember correctly, it's the, the investigation that the museum has convened itself, mm-hmm. and then there's an investigation that the attorney general is doing, oh. um, and 
that they should be uh, more transparent in what exactly happened with those student visitors. But I will say this, this is a show that had been underway even before then. Um, any exhibitions like this that you see typically are years in the making. Um, so this, I don't believe, was necessarily in response to that yeah, incident. Was, we should say that we're, I believe there were allegations or admissions of racist remarks by patrons towards some of these kids. But the staff, I thought, had been vindicated. I thought so, too, that one of the guards, I thought... Yeah, well, the MFA has come out and said that it's normal procedure for guards to patrol the galleries, but also there was a shift change while these students were there. So if they, the students felt that there was a greater presence, it's because there was a shift change. So I think the MFA has looked at their own videotape and didn't necessarily see wrongdoing, but they did uh, ascertain that there were t- at least two patrons who made yeah. racist remarks to yeah. these students. But again, the full results will come from these other two investigations. What are you doing uh, Friday night? Uh, Friday night we're not on the air because we're in the middle of the PBS pledge drive right now. We are? I did notice that when I turned on Channel 2 Ooh. last night. I saw people pledging, asking for money. We're not. You're watching my show, I assume? Yeah. Is that I mean, that's, that's right. I Thank turned you. on to watch your show, which Thank I did. I much. saw you had a wonderful show on transportation. Now so we're not spending nearly enough and going Thank quickly enough much. to repair the MBTA and the, and the uh, railway system. I think we all knew that, didn't and we? The roads. I think so. <laughs> you just gave me a moment of panic, Jim. I thought, wait, was I supposed <laughs> to be doing have a show this right. week? I'm a little yeah. behind if that's the case. It is Pledge Week on TV. It is not Pledge Week on the radio. We're happy to report. Nice to see Jared you. Jared Bowen, you. finish The Irishman, let's talk to Jared a little bit next week. Okay, I'll finish it tonight. I'll finish it tonight. Okay, I got a quiet night. I'll do it tonight. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jared Bowen. Uh, Jared Bowen is executive arts editor at WGBH. You can catch him every Friday night. Uh, open studio, 830, Channel 2. Not this weekend. He's going to be off, but almost every other weekend he's there. Thank you very much, Jared Bowen. Thank you, Jared. Coming up, in humanity's fight against climate change, are we at the point of no return? Environmentalist and journalist Bill McKibben joins us to talk about what's at stake at the CP25 Summit. Bill McKibben is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan, broadcasting from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. The world must choose hope over surrender in the fight against climate change. Those were the opening remarks of the U.N. Secretary General at this year's climate change conference known as COP25. By exiting the Paris Climate Accord and rolling back tons of environmental protections, President Trump threw in the towel a long time ago, but does that mean that the rest of the nation has too? Joining us to talk about who is leading the fight against climate change is one of the leaders of the fight against climate change, Bill McKibben. Bill's the co-founder of 350.org and the author of numerous books about climate change. His latest book on many best of 2019 lists, by the way, is Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? Bill, as always, great to talk to you. Well, good to talk with you guys. Great to talk to you, too, uh, Bill McKibben. So tell people, what is the significance of this uh, meeting in Madrid? Well, every year the U.N. convenes a big gathering to talk about climate. This one's number 26, which gives you some sense of how long we've been at this with so little to show for it. The biggest and most important of these was the one in December of 2015 in Paris when we reached the so-called Paris Climate Accords. And I think that was kind of the high watermark for U.N. action. You'll recall that Every nation made a series of voluntary pledges. They weren't 
unbelievably strict pledges, the temperature of the planet would still have gone up too much. But the hope was that we'd begin this process and countries would discover it was cheaper than they thought and we'd have a kind of virtuous cycle and speed up and get somewhere. Uh, then came Trump. Then yeah. came Bolsonaro, then came, you know, a, a lot of other potholes along this road we were hoping for. So, you know, I'm afraid at this point when the U.N. gathers, it's an attempt to somehow get things a little back on track. But much of the optimism about a kind of global solution that marked the Paris Accords, uh, I'm afraid, is in abeyance for now. Well, that's one of the things uh, that was discouraging in um, several of the pieces I read, Bill, that you know, Trump is obviously a big problem since he's not even on board with, with, with climate disruption, climate change, but that all around the world, um, the cooperation is not great. You mentioned you know, uh, Bolsonaro and nationalism is on the rise, and a lot of these leaders have financial ties to fossil fuels, which makes... Yep makes you a little uh, bit pessimistic. It does. The fossil fuel industry is definitely weakened. Uh, you know, the remarkable fall in the cost of solar and wind over the last decade, the price down 90%, makes it very clear where we're going to end up. You know, 75 years from now, we're going to run the wind, on, uh, run the world on sun and wind because essentially it's free. But... And the trajectory we're on now, the world that we run on sun and wind in 75 years is going to be a fundamentally broken world. Um, we're not going anywhere near fast enough because the fossil fuel industry is clearly willing to try and maintain its business model, e even at the cost of breaking the planet. And we're getting you know, new data every day about what that breakage looks like. There was a really remarkable study that came out in Nature six days ago. Uh, talking about the series of tipping points, things like Arctic ice and Antarctic ice, that when I wrote The End of Nature 30 years ago, we hoped were, you know, half a century or a century in the future as real threats. Uh, the latest data shows that these tipping points are being crossed as we speak. You know, uh, we're talking to Bill McKibben, and while uh, obviously Donald Trump is not just an outlier here, the only outlier uh, in the world, at least formally, in terms of his nation, and arguably worse because he's an obstructionist on the issue, I guess on the bright side, Nancy Pelosi, the most powerful Democrat in America, is in Madrid, and John Curry has just formed this group called a World War uh, Zero. I'm not quite sure about the, the title. But what was troubling to both Marjorie and me when he's trying to pitch this as a real bipartisan effort, he's got to cite Arnold Schwarzenegger and the former governor of Ohio, John Kasich. He's got yeah. Carter and Clinton. Why is George W. Bush not part of this, Bill McKibben? Uh, you'll recall that George W. I mean, you'll recall that George W. Bush looks better once we've been through the Trump years. <laughs> that would be time. true. However, it was George W. Bush who uh, named. Dick Cheney, vice president or president of Halliburton Oil, as his vice president, and within two weeks of taking office, repudiated his campaign promise to treat carbon dioxide as a pollutant, essentially pulled us out of the Kyoto Accords, which were the precursor to the Paris Accords. Uh, look, the Republican Party at a certain point became a wholly owned subsidiary of the fossil fuel industry, and it's kept it from playing its historic 
role as a kind of partner in the conservation effort. That's what it was in the 20th century, beginning with Theodore Roosevelt, and that's what it's not in the 21st. You know, we talk a lot on the show, Bill McKibben, about uh, the immigration uh, crisis in this country and some of the horrific things that are being done in our name on the border, and particularly what being done to kids. But, you know, we focus a lot on the causes of immigration from places like Honduras, Guatemala, Guatemala, El Salvador, as being the violence, which is a legitimate concern and which is part of the cause. But I just recently read an interview with you uh, where you're suggesting that uh, a huge swath of these people that are fleeing to the north of the United States are essentially climate change refugees, Bill. Is that so? There was a huge, really good series of stories in the Times uh, about six weeks ago that really laid out the data. Uh, There's been a really epic drought across the uplands of Honduras, Guatemala. If you look at a map, it's one of the few places in the world where there are big oceans close by on both sides. And as you know, oceans are warming faster even than land, and that means that, you know, the possibilities for really dramatic disruption, in this case drought, not unlike the drought we've seen in California, Mm -hmm. are very high. So, yeah, I mean, in one sense, clearly a lot of these people are climate refugees, and it took a million of them to completely discombobulate the politics of our country. Now bear in mind that the U.N. estimates that the, that the total of climate refugees in the course of this century may be about a billion. So multiply the disruption we've seen so far by a thousand, you get some sense of, uh, you know, how crucial this is. I, I actually went to jail in August in an immigration protest in upstate New York, kind of trying to draw the lines here, we definitely, I mean, look, in, in a world in that kind of flux, some strategy other than walls and cages is required. There's going to have to be some ethic of solidarity, especially because the people who are having to move are not the ones that cause the problem. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're, we have caused so much of the problem here in, in our own country. But I want to ask you something about the, the, the politics going on now. You know, you don't really hear... I mean, maybe there's been a couple of questions, but I haven't heard much focus on climate disruption in the Democratic debates. Uh, um, It's it's rather odd. Well, I think that in this case, it's really not on the candidates who are trying fairly hard to talk about it. For some reason, every time they have a debate, there's this obsessive focus on how we're going to pay precisely for health care. And important, interesting topic, on and on and on, but we're examining with... Jesuitical zeal uh, and ignoring the uh, other rather dramatic uh, problem that we're facing, um, the erosion of the basic, uh, you know, basic physical systems of the planet. It's one of the reasons, I think, that increasingly those of us who work on this are sort of trying to break down the problem into two two parcels. We definitely have to get big political change. That's why it's so great to see the Green New Deal being, you know, zealously prosecuted by AOC and Bernie and Senator Warren and so on. Um, But political change comes slowly. And so we're also trying to work on the financial power that drives the fossil fuel industry. Uh, There's been an increasing 
display, you know, sort of series of actions and reactions from within the banking industry and the insurance industry. Just in the last couple of days, some of the biggest insurers in the world have announced that they'll no longer be uh, underwriting uh, coal projects uh, and tar sands projects and things. Unfortunately, those are the big European insurers. That's why activists are out on Berkeley Street again, uh, you know, this week targeting Liberty Mutual. Uh, it came in, I think, dead last in this newly released scorecard of insurance companies uh, with a commitment to around climate change because it keeps doing things like uh, underwriting new pipelines out of the tar sands. If companies would simply refuse to do that, to give them the insurance they need, we could begin to you know, grapple with the power of the fossil fuel industry. You know, so I'm sorry, I think increasingly that's where a lot of attention is going to go too. not just Washington, but Wall Street. You know, speaking of Wall Street and, and businesses, Marjorie and I talk a lot about this, uh, the California taking the lead on a whole variety of things. And then I guess Governor Newsom forced to take uh, a lead on fracking, thanks to you and some of your uh, colleagues. But Obviously, there is Newsom versus Trump on these uh, California's ability to set its own more stringent auto emission standards. Why the divide in the uh, uh, auto community? Some siding with Trump, saying the feds should decide. Obviously, that means less stringent. And some siding with California. Why do they? Why do they pick the side they do? Some of them are just so. uh, They're business model is so built right now around more SUVs that they can't bring themselves. It's sort of like the oil industry. I mean, mm-hmm. they know that this isn't going to last forever or even much longer. They just want it to last as long as it possibly can. And, you know, I guess one understands that, but not at the cost of, of doing the damage that they're doing to the planet. You know, uh, Bill, one of the things I was mentioning, Martin, I'm sorry, sure. Off that, you know, I, I've been a loyal Toyota customer for like 30 years. Yeah. I'm wondering now, should I buy a different car? I mean, should we be doing, you yeah. know, I, I love my Toyota, but I was disgusted. Time for your, time for your cyber truck, Marjorie. I, <laughs> I guess so. But I wonder if there's any kind of action along those lines of people saying. There are people who are disgruntled. I think Toyota's just figuring like everything else, it just gets all gets lost in the crazy wash of news and anger and outrage and whatever at the moment. But it really is outrageous because this is a place where, you know, where good policy clearly also coincides with good economics. In the long run, these companies need and benefit from a kind of measured prod to move in the right direction. Um, So let's hope that that someone provides it. I mean, uh, the, the good news is that there's a lot of prodding going on, you know. I mean, the, the movement around climate change is big and loud and growing all the time, much of it coming from young people, of course. Uh, you know, I've spent some of the last month writing college recommendations for people that I think of as pretty close colleagues, you know, 17-year-olds who've been doing great <laughs> climate organizing, and now they're, you know, finishing up their senior year in high school. Um, that makes me very happy, the kind yeah. of Greta generation is doing its thing, but it's not okay to take 
the biggest problem the world ever faced and assign it to 14-year-olds to solve. You know? you know, and last time you told us about your day with Greta Thunberg, which was just so yeah. uplifting. You know, one last thing about this Toyota issue that Marjorie, I mentioned to Marjorie this morning, when I was young and irresponsible and in the labor movement, the AFL-CIO always used to publish a list later online when the internet came around about companies that were supportive of organized labor and, labor and companies that were not, and the, obviously the point being patronize those which are or don't, those which are not. Does 350.org or any other organization do lists of companies that are on the right side of the issue and those are, which are not? Yes, there are people who do green certification and so on, I, and, and it's important, and, and one should do it, but one shouldn't get lost in the in the notion that we're going to solve this thing one Prius at a time. Mm. We've waited a long time. <laughs> the most important thing an individual can do at this point is be a little bit less of an individual and join together with others in the movements that really can change things. And i got to say, I was quite heartened by the pictures out of the Yale Bowl in oh, yeah. 10 oh. days ago of alumni streaming onto the field, good Sam Waterston Yale class of something down there getting himself arrested to demand that our elites start divesting themselves of fossil fuels and stop trying to make money off the end of the world, you know? Um, but we should but say that we, piece about this. we should also say that uh, obviously people know Bill was a star fullback when he went to Harvard. So, uh, <laughs> that, you know, there's a, let me read to you from Larry. I don't get this. I mean, you write in a piece that University of California with its $80 billion endowment, which I think is roughly twice of your alma mater, has uh, divested. And here's what Larry Bacow, the fairly new president of Harvard, has to say in response to that halftime demonstration at the Yale Bowl. Uh, this debate is healthy. And while I, like my predecessors, believe that engaging with industry to confront the cl uh, challenge of climate change is ultimately a sounder and more effective approach for our university, I respect the views of those who think otherwise. What do you say to Bacow? Yeah, let, let's be serious here. What Harvard, what Harvard is worried about is that, you know, some, you know, Nathaniel P. Bearer Bonds, the seventh, <laughs> isn't going to donate the 19th squash court, you know, because uh, he'll read some nasty piece in the Wall Street Journal about Harvard divesting. It's time for Harvard to actually, you know, if you're going to have an establishment, uh, I mean, what is establishment's just the kind of plural of privilege, you know? And if you're going to have one, it better justify itself in times of real stress and need by acting with some kind of responsibility. And Harvard, i got to say, really should be deeply ashamed of itself at this point. Well, you point out that this is not the first time Harvard should have been deeply ashamed of itself. In your piece, you point out that it took it took a long time for them to divest from apartheid South Africa. They had to get Desmond Tutu, the South African Archbishop, and Al Gore and the board of Harvard before they before they did it. So I, they Harvard, are backward. Harvard just announced, Marjorie, that they were going to do an investigation into their role in slavery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it's like, yeah. good, well, that's good, that's, that's good. good, but but as long as we're doing it, maybe we could not wait 100 years this time and get on top of the problem, you know, whatever it is, a little sooner. There are a wonderful group of recent Harvard graduates who are running a slate of candidates for the Board of Overseers are trying to. Harvard makes it very difficult, but if people are interested, uh, you just Google Harvard forward and you'll 
find these uh, people who are doing their best. Can we talk about another Harvard alum who's on our show once a month who is amongst the prodders that you're talking about? Maura Healy is involved in some yeah. pretty aggressive litigation <laughs> about something you're the first one to enlighten us about years ago, about the stories in the Los Angeles Times about how ExxonMobil and the others were hiding information from both their their uh, investors and their consumers, and they knew ages ago, a la the cigarette companies, the damage that this fossil fuel thing was doing to our planet. How significant could Healy's suit be? And she's crossed every hurdle that ExxonMobil yep. has put in her path. How significant could a victory uh, be here, uh, Bill McKibben? It could be significant as can be. Let me just say, I, you know, I don't normally... Uh, follow politicians uh, with enormous fervor and loyalty, but I'd follow her off a cliff. She's really something. And it's because she's willing to stand up to the biggest, meanest uh, bullies on the block. Uh, Exxon, you know, just is just came out of court in New York State where they're suing them on other grounds, and the attorney that they hired was the same guy who'd stood up for big tobacco yeah. uh, during the cigarette wars, you know. Um, so they play for keeps, and good on her for bringing this case. Look, Exxon knew everything there was to know about climate change in the 1980s. We've found charts even recently, that internal company charts that predicted with unerring accuracy what the temperature and the CO2 concentration would be in 2019. Exxon knew that. Exxon believed that. Exxon built its drilling rigs to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was coming. They just didn't tell the rest of us. They just embarked on this, you know, with all the other rest of the industry, on this big, expensive, three-decade-long campaign to, to, well, to make people think that there was some doubt about whether climate change was real. They sponsored a phony debate that both sides knew the answer to at the beginning. It's just one of them was willing to lie. And good on her for calling that out and trying to do something about it. Uh, we'll see. You know, our judicial system is, I'm afraid, often seems to be set up to aid the powerful uh, in their depredations, but one can hope that she will manage to overcome, and good honor for trying. You know, we're talking to environmentalist Bill McKibben. You know, Bill, in this piece, this New York Times piece, it was talking about the uh, United Nations and the Madrid meeting and so forth. It was pointing out that we're really doing a lousy job, that we're, that we're uh, the greenhouse gas emissions have grown 1.5% every year over the last decade, uh, that we're not close to the even the Paris Accord agreements, and the, even the Paris Accord agreements aren't enough, and uh, we have a bleak outlook and blah, blah, blah. So I'm wondering if you think that there's a sense, besides the 14-year-olds, uh, despite the fact that no one seems to be talking about this in debates, and shame on the reporters for not bringing it up, th that it seems to me people are getting a little panicky. Um, yep. But I, I don't know if i In I'm, a good way. In a good way. Yep. Uh, no, Marjorie, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think, truthfully, we're kind of entering the the end game, the period of time after 30 years of work when this is going to be a politically salient, top-of-mind issue precisely because people are scared. And how could they not be? I mean, you know, look at California. That was our place that we used to, all of us yes. who lived on the East Coast, thought was the you know, the golden yeah. idol where, you know, where, where lucky people got to, and now it's a, now they, you know, wildfire smoke in the air half the year. They shut down the power to Northern California day after day to keep it from sparking more wildfires because it's so dry. 
and so hot. Uh, I mean, it's it's it, it, that's the kind of thing that's really moving the dial in terms of public opinion. The question is now whether or not we have enough time left to to do much about it. And the answer to that is we don't exactly know. We clearly don't have much time. We clearly have to move much faster than we'll be politically or economically comfortable. And that's going to take movements pushing and pushing hard. By the way, did you, speaking of California, we had the woman who uh, was behind a great frontline piece called Fire in Paradise about Paradise, California. Did you happen to see that, Bill, or did you not? I didn't see that, but I've heard that it was terrific. It was brilliant, very, it was and very... it makes such a clear climate change connection. It is really yeah, yeah. spectacular. I, well, there's no, I mean, there's no, and it's one of the, it's one of the other things that makes this stuff about like insurance companies so crazy. Right at the same moment that they're underwriting new pipelines, they're calling up, you know, companies like Liberty Mutual are calling up customers in California and canceling their insurance. I mean. These guys have the data. They know what's going on. It's time for everybody in leadership to start acting with a lot more responsibility. Well, in this same New York Times piece, which has got a lot of good data in it, it talks about how uh, to remain within relatively safe limits, emissions have to go down uh, by 7.6% every year, at least between next year, which is 2020 and 2030. So, I mean... We, we got a hard, it, this is like an emergency that's right upon us, and yep. I, I don't, we're really not dealing with it. Nope. We, we've, by postponing action for so long, we've taken what was a dealable with problem and made it, I mean, you know, as you know, I wrote the first book about this 30 years yeah. ago. 30 years ago, a modest tax on carbon would have done a lot, you know, it wouldn't have, it, it would have steered the super tanker that is our economy a few degrees off its course, and 30 years later we would have sailed a long ways into a different ocean. Instead, thanks to the oil companies, we just floored it, you know, we just went straight ahead and faster and faster. So now, to switch metaphors, uh, you know, the slope that we had to go down 30 years ago was, you know, it was like the bunny slope or maybe a blue slope at, uh, you know, at, at Killington or Mount Snow or whatever. Now, having postponed this, it's it's somewhere between a double black diamond and a cliff. <laughs> oh, you know, God. so that's hard. <laughs> that's going to take real, real leadership and real courage. Uh, and 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 even if we do everything right, there's some chance we won't get down it. The sooner we start, and the more bravely, the better our chances. You know, I never even made it down the bunny slope without falling down, I should say. In this, <laughs> You know, by the way, inspired by you, Bill McKibben, we're actually going to invite the uh, leaders Liberty of Mutual. Liberty Mutual Absolutely. to join us on the show to talk about Great. this. So thanks for, for bringing it up. Here's my guess. Here's my guess. They really haven't focused on it as an issue. And I, I, I trust that when they do, they'll do the right thing because, after all, they're the people we ask in our economy to think about risk, you know. Mm. That's, their, that's their job. And and so I'm very glad you're doing that, and I'll very much look forward to hearing the results. Um, uh, it, it's a very important conversation. Bill, thanks for your leadership, thank and you. thanks for your time, yeah, as always. Yeah, and really thank you for all, all your great work on this, Bill McKibben. It's so appreciated. Take care. Thank you. Have a good day. You, you too. too. Bill McKibben is co-founder of 350.org and the author of many books about climate change. His latest book, big bestseller, is Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? This Thursday, December 5th at 7 o'clock, 
Bill McKibben will give the annual Elizabeth and Lawrence Vadney Environmental Issues Lecture at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts in North Adams. It's free and open to the public. To learn more about it, go to mcla.edu. Coming up, CNN's John King is here to go over the latest headlines, including what President Trump and President Macron were fighting about on TV earlier this morning. John King is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Joining us online to go over the latest political headlines is John King. John is CNN's chief national correspondent, the anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays at noon and Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. Hello there, John King. Hello on this very, 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 very getting busier by the minute Tuesday. Well, we just learned from you guys at CNN that Kamala Harris is about to drop out of the uh, 2020 presidential race. Yeah, she has told her staff of this, and it's still reaching out to more staff and supporters around the country to let them know, and then we expect to see a video message uh, later this afternoon. Uh, and it's remarkable uh, in the sense that if you go back to the very beginning, uh, she was looked at as one of the sort of new faces in the party a new, on the national stage with great potential, a lot of hype early on, a very well-orchestrated presidential campaign rollout. Uh, but then she quickly started struggling. I mean, it's not a surprise in the sense that if you followed the race for the last few months, uh, she has been stuck, you know, in the single digits, usually somewhere around three, four, five, six percent. Um, first, it was going to be South Carolina was going to save her. Then she said she was moving to Iowa. Um, has had sort of trouble um, planting her. This is me, her identity flag, if you will. You know, Joe yeah. Biden's the guy who says he wants to be president. Pete Buttigieg is the guy from the Midwest who's you know generationally different. Elizabeth Harris is the I mean, Elizabeth Warren is the I have a plan progressive. Bernie Sanders is the revolution. What is Kamala Harris? Uh, I think that was part of her problem in this race. You know, John, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm done. It's just it's just to me when you see this happen to somebody who's, you know, she just put out an email. Now I just got the official word. I'm suspending my campaign today. Uh, Came into the inbox. You know, just think California senator, rising star in the party. A lot of Democrats thought, you know, it should be a female. Maybe it should be a female, a woman of color uh, as the nominee. So it's, it's, it's a, and it's a big day in the race as we get 62 days from now, Iowa votes. And so another candidate drops out. Governor Bullock dropped out this week. Um, it's starting to matter. Uh, by the way, uh, someone who shall remain unnamed a few months ago said that uh, she was his pick of most likely Democratic nominee <laughs> for president. I wonder who that uh, might have been, but, but you did Jim. Nail, you, but you did nail it, John. I, it, what was her reason for being? I never, I never quite got it either, except that she's very talented as a politician. She was really good in the early debate. So who benefits from this? You know, it's a great question, Marjorie, in the sense that you could make an argument, you know, her math is pretty weak, so how does she benefit? Who benefits? I mean, if there's two or two or three or four percent, depending on what state we're talking about, to divvy up, does somebody benefit? Uh, you know, I'm going to sit here and say that my first reflex is this potentially could help Biden. Um, if you're in South Carolina and Kamala Harris was 
you had some support among African-American voters there, particularly she, uh, sorority sisters organizations uh, in, this, in the state. Um, maybe, uh, but I wouldn't go too far with any of that. Elizabeth Warren has also worked very hard, especially in the African-American community of late, especially among African-American women. Um, and, and so I don't know the answer to that. Joe Biden was just asked about it, and he said uh, that he was shocked. He called her a first-rate intellect, a first-rate candidate. Uh, there was some talk way, way, way back before right. uh, he got into the race that his people wanted to reach out to her to be a team. She did not distinguish herself as a candidate. Uh, however, um, she will be on the list of any Democratic vice presidential potentials yeah. uh, be, because uh, she's uh, from a state. She, 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 I went out to Iowa months ago and spent the day with her and interviewed her, and I came back you know, with this sort of mixed there, – there's a ton of potential in there as someone who's watched these candidates for 30 years, and you've got to give them room to grow, and you have to give them grace because it's really hard to run for president. It, it beats you up. You have to raise a ton of money. Um, you're competing in places you've never been. Even though she's from a big state like California, doesn't have a competitive Republican Party. Um, so she's never been in sort of a tough race like this with the stakes like this. Uh, so you learn a lot. I think there's enormous potential in there, but I did think she struggled with the identity. Her first one was, I'm going to prosecute the case against Trump because she was the attorney general in California. And yet with her own base, African-American voters, the word prosecutor can be troublesome because of criminal justice reform and you know, about p police shootings and stuff. So, and so she sort of backed away from that because there was some resistance of, does that send the right message to the progressive base of the party? And I don't think she ever found her footing. That doesn't mean she doesn't have a lot to offer the party. Um, and it also tells you that this is an impressive field. It, it's hard. If you're a California senator trying to break in with Bernie Sanders, who's run before, Joe Biden, who's been a, run twice before and was a vice president for eight years, Elizabeth Warren, who has a plan for everything and has methodically thought this through, and then she thought she would be the surprise candidate, if you will, and there, you know, Beto O'Rourke might have been that person. Uh, and it turned out to be Buttigieg at the moment. The, 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 the sort of the new fresh face lane has gone to Buttigieg for now. Again, 62 days from Iowa. Uh, it's getting interesting. Okay, so, so can we move to uh, two guys who I assume will never be accused of being BFFs after this morning? Yeah, uh, hold on. I just want to point out, you kept telling me I was, not, I was being nasty to President Trump because it looked like he was never looking at all at uh, President Macron yeah. on TV, and that Jim explained to me that that was because the interpreter was to the president. I didn't explain to you. Left. I suggested that. <clears throat> but I'm still suspicious because uh, the president, our, our president, looked like his head was going to explode listening to Macron, and, and you almost never saw him look at Macron the entire time Macron was talking. And then there was some fisticuffs, John. Yeah, they almost came to blows. I'm not literally, but this was no. not, this is a pretty contentious uh, uh, twosome. Was it not this morning? Jim, if I have learned anything over the years in these Tuesday conversations, even back to when they were on a different time of day in a different mm. place, is that I am not going to try to mansplain Marjorie. Uh, <laughs> I didn't, by the way. I, I, you're going to get me in more trouble, John King. <laughs> that's, my, that's my goal. That's, that's my goal every Tuesday. Uh, 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 but no, look, I, I think you're both right in the sense that he was leaning over for the translator, but then I think he was also like, whoa, this guy is in my face on everything. Uh, Trump said, I like Erdogan. Macron leaned forward, pointed at Trump, and said he's buying Russian missile systems. A NATO ally cannot do that. Trump said we should get along with Putin. And Macron said, well, we should have a part. We should, yes, we need to talk to Putin, but let's not be naive here. Uh, <laughs> Trump said, do you want your ISIS fighters back? And Macron said, let's be serious. The fight against ISIS is not over. 
Um, he corrected his facts on trade. Um, it was remarkable, especially if you think back to the Eiffel Tower dinner and the two wives, and they were going to be friends, and Macron was going to be you know, the bridge for Europe because he was fighting with Theresa May, and he was fighting with Angela Merkel, and Macron was going to be the guy who translated Trump for the skeptical Europeans. Now, part of this is politics on Macron's part. He understands it's in his interest, not only in France, but as he tries to emerge as the new Merkel, if you will, as a big player across the European uh, Union. Uh, but it, I, I asked Admiral Kirby, our, our retired uh, mm-hmm. diplomat who works at the State Department of the Pentagon, because I covered the White House for 10 years, I never, ever remember a foreign leader essentially saying, no, you are wrong, wrong, wrong again, wrong, to a president of the United States in a public setting like that. I have never seen it. By the way, and they're sitting like three feet away from each other, so this was not one of these podium-to-podium kind of things. The expression, I think, of the picture that you guys have uh, on your website, I mean, really captures it all. Trump looked like he was going to explode. Well, well, one of the issues with the president, and this is the incoming you get from uh, diplomats, I can't be more specific, but diplomats in these countries when you have these meetings, is they often complain that the president is rude to their leaders, uh, the, the, the countries with female leaders, uh, uh, Theresa May, not anymore, but Theresa May previously, Angela Merkel now, you get from the diplomats and the staff um, that Trump is rude to them, especially to the women, but also that he just, he's, he, that he hasn't read the brief and he's not prepared. And you could see Macron there, you know, no, NATO allies shouldn't buy weapons from the <laughs> Russians. Um, no, uh, we don't need to kiss up to Vladimir Putin at a time his troops are in Ukraine. Um, no, the fight against ISIS is not over. Uh, and again, Macron tried to be nice to Trump, so I, I don't want to put this all on President Trump in the sense that Macron has, you know, he sees political advantage in challenging Trump here. And remember, earlier in the day, at the meeting with the NATO um, Secretary General, Trump essentially, you know, challenged French identity, saying, if, if you think about, I'm not going to, you know, if you think about France's history, saying, well, of all the countries in NATO, France needs NATO the most, essentially. Mm-hmm. Suggesting, you know, if, if a war right. comes, you know, Fr- France is going to need help. And so Trump poked the bear first, but Macron came into that meeting. It was clearly saying that, you know, I, I'm not going to, he never said the words, you're wrong, but everything he said in the body language and then essentially laying out his version of where he thinks the world should be and the NATO alliance should be was just to show what a completely different worldview President Trump has from many of the leaders we would traditionally call our friends, our allies, and our partners. We're talking to CNN's John King. Um, why did the president imply that the China trade deal not, may not be resolved till after the election? What was, what's that about? You know, th- this one's fascinating, uh, Jim and Marjorie, because we've talked about this so many times over the years. This is the issue on which immigration might be the other one, that the president is most consistent. Uh, and sometimes even when it hurts him. Everyone says, you know, President Trump only cares about President Trump. This is an issue that could be hurting him in some of the key battleground states in the 2020 election, where you hear farmers, even farmers who say, I get it, we should stand up to China, um, you know, starting to get tired, starting to pay an economic price for this. And the president believes, and we'll see if he's right, that these, they're going to stay with him, even if they're hurting, that they're patriotic, and they're going to say, you know, all right, uh, you know, this is hurting me, but the president's right about this. However, he said, maybe we'll wait till after the election. Now, here's the question. Is the incoming from China just so disappointing that the president is trying to set our expectations that we're not going to get a deal anytime soon? Or is the president essentially using this as a negotiating tactic to the Chinese saying, your latest offer is not good enough. I'm willing to wait you out. I'm going to prove I have the patience to wait you out. And so it's a negotiating tactic. I don't think we know the answer, and I don't want to try to read the president's mind. But 
this is an issue where sometimes what he says risks hurting him politically, and this president very rarely does that. The market's down, was down 400 points at one point today. I'm not sure exactly where it is now, uh, but it was down 400 points at one point today. These things reverberate around the farm states and the manufacturing states where trade is such a giant issue. Uh, and so I don't know what that's all about, I think was your question, but, but this to me is one of the biggest fascinating questions for the president. You know, we saw a report yesterday that manufacturing is slowing down. Yes, the stock market for the most part down today continues to set records, uh, but there are some warning signs out in the key states, and yet the president is sticking to his trade policy, which in some ways is it's courageous. I know there are maybe a lot of people out there who aren't Trump fans or who think he's doing the wrong thing on trade. I just mean in the standpoint of continuing to do something that his political team raises their hands and says, sir, just want to make sure you're aware you could pay a price for this. Uh, he continues to do it. By the way, it's down 330 as you're speaking. So, John, Judiciary Committee convenes tomorrow uh, to begin their phase of this uh, impeachment process. We, I don't know if CNN created the term pre-buttled, but I loved it last night. The Republicans put out a report essentially denying, I think it's fair to say, virtually everything uh, that was said during two weeks of intelligence committee hearings. I assume we're still waiting for the Democrats. Donald Trump's lawyer says Sunday night he will not participate in the at least the first of the Judiciary Committee hearings tomorrow, but reserves his right to participate down the line. Can we start with that? What possible reason would the president have for ever getting involved since, as so many have said, all it does would legitimize a process that he himself has been trying to delegitimize since day one? And he's got Jim Jordan and he's got Doug Collins and he's got powerful allies there. Right. Well, certainly tomorrow they see no need to participate because it's largely an academic exercise, constitutional lawyers. I'm not yeah. criticizing or demeaning them in any way, but this is sort of the foundation. You know, what is the standard for impeaching a president? What does the Constitution say? Mm -hmm. What happened to Nixon? What happened to, you know, uh, in the Clinton days? Uh, what's the history? And then the Democrats will make their case that what the president has done meets that bar. Um, so does the president need to be there for that? He certainly could have an attorney saying, no, we have not met that bar. We're nowhere close. But they've decided not to do that, and they still want to call it illegitimate. Will they, in the next round of the House Judiciary Committee hearings, they have a couple days, I think until Friday, to decide the answer to that. Um, my bet is, at least as of today, their answer is no. But the president said something intriguing today, and again, a lot of eyes are going to roll when I repeat this. Uh, he was sitting in London with Mike, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, Mick Mulvaney, the Acting Chief of Staff, right there, sitting inches from him. And he said, well, I might let them testify in the Senate trial because we'll get a more fair shake mm. there. Uh, they are first-hand witnesses who know a lot of things about withholding aid to Ukraine, about Rudy Giuliani's mischief in Ukraine, about when the president, what the president said to who and when. Um, they would be very interesting witnesses. Um, and will the president really let them testify in a Senate trial? Mark Medan is skeptical, but he's on the record today seemed to suggest that he believes, and you, know, you have a Republican majority in the Senate, uh, the Chief Justice presides, not the Democrats. Um, he seemed to be suggesting that he's open to this when we get to the Senate. Again, Mark Medan is skeptical, but I think that's something important to keep on the radar screen. So if we can discuss, John King, a couple of polls, and I have to say, we've said it a thousand times, I think most of America agrees with us, the person to watch to explain polling numbers in small jurisdictions and large ones, there's no one like you. So here is John King during an episode of Inside Politics, rendered speechless, apparently, <laughs> by the results of a poll that said that 53% of Republicans today said Donald Trump is a better leader than Abraham Lincoln. Here it is. 
Uh, this is an Economist YouGov poll. Just as the Republican, the Republican sample in this poll, which Republican president was better, Trump or Lincoln? Yeah. <laughs> well, speechless. <laughs> Are you still speechless, John King? I am, by the way. Uh, look, I, I guess there's a little snarky there, and if you're a Trump supporter, you think I'm a jack, you can fill in the end of the word uh, for saying it that way. But yes, yes, I mean, you know, Lincoln kept the country together. Was Lincoln perfect? No, I've gotten a lot of incoming from people about, you know, Lincoln sure, rounded, yeah. up some, rounded up critics and imprisoned them during the Civil War. Um, I think it was a bigger moment in, in world and American history. Um, he freed the slaves, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Gettysburg Address. Um, I, I think you can support President Trump, um, and still say Lincoln is a more historic figure. That, that's my take as a graduate of Boston Latin School and so on and so forth. Um, you know, if, if, you, if, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I'll, I'll, I'm comfortable being wrong if I'm wrong. Okay, so let's go to polls that are, well, actually, in some ways, just as interesting. Bloomberg it is, is in his first poll and comes out of the box pretty strong. Elizabeth Warren continues to... Uh, have the tide not going her way. How do you explain both, John King? Uh, Warren, let's start there, has plateaued without a doubt, and I, my, I attribute that to the specific attacks on Medicare for all and her own you know, sort of figuring out how to uh, pay for it and then what the transition period would be. Uh, and then adding that, the and Medicare for all debate, into the broader conversation about can we go this far left? You, know, you can add the Green New Deal to that. You can add free college to that. You know, is she too far left to win a general election against Donald Trump? You know, the springboard, the trampoline for that conversation, I think, it has been the Medicare for All debate. Uh, Bloomberg gets in, he pops up at 4%, I think, in our national poll recently, and you've seen him around there and some others. Um, that's still single digits, but it's from out of nowhere, and I think it's one of the reasons Kamala Harris is getting out. Here's this guy who you know, just got into the race, but he's spending a boatload of money. She doesn't have any more money. He's up to 4%. It, to me, is still a, uh, you know, thread the needle, draw to an inside straight flush, pick your cliche long shot metaphor for Bloomberg. But what he's hoping on is that, you know, Biden comes in third or fourth in Iowa, Sanders or Warren wins New Hampshire, and then Nevada and South Carolina sort of give us more of a muddle. And then he raises his hand and says, okay, we've got two or three or four winners so far. Um, Biden's weak. He can't beat these people. Buttigieg hasn't proven himself. And Warren and Sanders will lead the party to electoral disaster. Here I am, and I'm going to spend my own money, and I'm a good fit for the suburbs because of climate change and gun control and ran a city, um, not scary liberal. Uh, that's his plan. It's never been done before. Can we get back never to never been done before that you sit out these first four contests and wait? So, um, you know, I'm, again, I'm saying this a lot. I'm skeptical, but I'm also eyes wide open. Can we get back to Warren for a second? You talked about the reasons for her decline or and, plateauing. And what does plateauing mean? What is that? She's not really dropping. She's flatlined. Okay. I mean, she may have dropped. If you look at this poll or that poll, she's down a little from this poll or down a little from that poll. I just, my constant broken record on this is don't buy into any one poll. You know, either average out the four polls done in the last month or go back and look at the last six months. She grew dramatically in the summertime. We talked about it repeatedly almost yep. every week about how much she was growing. Now she's flatlined a little bit. Running for president is hard. When you start to perform better, you're going to become the target. She has become the target. And guess what? I don't care how good you are. You pay a price when you become a target. Um, go back to Obama-Clinton, the long run. You know, Obama suddenly proved himself. She got more aggressive about him. Uh, you know, she won some, she lost some. So this is how it goes. So this is, this is testing time. At the beginning of the race, Elizabeth Warren was struggling. She dealt with it. 
and she grew and she did something remarkable for a few months. Now she's plateaued and flatlined. There's a debate coming up pretty soon, next week, I think. Um, you know, this is, a, this is testing time. Iowa votes in 62 days, New Hampshire's a week after that, then Nevada, South Carolina, and then after those first four, the blur. A couple of big Super Tuesdays where a ton of delegates get decided. So you learn a lot when candidates get knocked down or at least get the, going from the, the wind was at her back, now it's in her face. What does she do? She wants to be president? This is where you prove yourself. Uh, can, you, uh, can you think of a historical precedent where someone went from low numbers to leading to having her numbers or his numbers cut in half who rebounded John? Has there been such a candidate who's ended up winning a nomination? Uh, now you're testing my, my civ-like brain on so many of these elections. I can't think of anyone, but I also, I just, I just want to go back to, you know, Obama couldn't win, right? He was a nice, fresh yeah. face, and he was interesting, the voice of the future. Then he proved his viability, and he was done. Um, Bernie Sanders was going to be weak and not a threat to Hillary Clinton last time. He ran a pretty steady race with a small PT boat against the aircraft carrier. Trump can't win the Republican nomination. There's no way he can win the presidency. Uh, he's president of the United yeah. States. We live in these volatile yeah. times. Uh, and you have this mix of impressive people in the Democratic race. It started out with 25 of them. Um, you know, I say impressive. That doesn't mean this one's better than that one. That's not my job. But you have senators and governors and, and you know, even the mayors, you know, the mayors who didn't make it and the mayors who are still in there. Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, couldn't get any speed. Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, couldn't get any legroom. So to me, this is just a really fascinating race about, about the personalities, but also about the Democrats are struggling in the age of Trump. Who do we want to be? before we pick who we want to lead us. Um, and I, I think that, you know, given the way the calendar plays out, given her resources, given her tenacity, whether you like her or not, whether you agree with her plan or not, um, she's tenacious and a fighter, that I wouldn't count her out, but I would say right now she's having some issues. And again, all candidates have issues. The, the challenge is, you know, can you, can you recover from them? Last thing, John, uh, the other Massachusetts candidate, what are we, three weeks, four weeks in? To develop Patrick for uh, president, what do you make of the first three or four weeks? Um, not terribly impressive, um, and not necessarily his fault. That's not a crit you know, he got in late. He's running a more traditional. He does, he's not Michael Bloomberg. He can't write himself checks. Right. And so he's essentially trying to get in. You asked me who could benefit from a Kamala Harris. Is it possible Deval Patrick mm -hmm. does? Um, that if, can if, if voters, whether they're white or black or male or female, are looking for a diverse candidate for president who thinks that's important for the Democratic Party, does he get a second look or, you know, does he get a look um, now? I, I don't know. I, but he, I think, you know, we talked about this last week. He knew that he was, you know, trying to essentially, you know, run a marathon with a tornado in mm -hmm. front of him in his face. Um, and so... Uh, <laughs> I like know, that image. <laughs> it's, it's just hard. It, it's just, you know, you got, you got to come in and Bloomberg's going to write his own checks. Um, Biden may be struggling to raise money, but he has, a, he has a national organization already built. He has donors committed to him. He has a super PAC out there run by a Boston guy, for, uh, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, can you come into that and raise enough money to be competitive? And where's your state to break through? Um, so, again, it's threading a needle. Pick any cliche you want. So I, I, I'm, here I go again. I, I'm skeptical, but I'm intrigued uh, that he wants to give this a try. And... This, this stops becoming theory in 60 days when Iowa kicks off what is going to become a blur. Once Iowa votes, it is going to be a blur. And oh. all of a sudden, we're going, to be, we're going to be having Thanksgiving again and saying, whoa, what happened? <laughs> well, I'm oh, supporting the long shot guy, Abe Lincoln. That's who I'm with. <laughs> I think he can rebound from that poll. John, it's a pleasure, as always. Talk to you next Thank week. Thank you very much, John King. John King.
You too. John Keane joins us every week. He's CNN's chief national correspondent, anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays at noon, Sunday mornings at 8. Up next, a federal court in Boston has made it illegal for border agents to conduct warrantless searches. The ACLU's Carol Rose joins us for that. More keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. A dog is supposed to be man and sometimes woman's best friend, but what if that dog has a rechargeable battery, 360-degree <laughs> video surveillance capabilities, and an arm that extends from its head to open doors? That's what Boston Dynamics robot dog, Spot, that's the name of the dog, can do. And the ACLU has discovered the Spot has already been employed by the state police in Massachusetts. Joining us to talk about this and other headlines at the intersection of civil liberties and policy is Carol Rose. Carol, of course, is the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. Hi there, Carol. Hi, good morning. And to you guys, Hi, whatever you. it is. Uh, hello, Carol Rose. Good afternoon. You're good close afternoon. That's, yeah, that's okay. okay. So, so uh, Carol, the ACLU uh, was involved in a class action lawsuit, which you've won. A, a judge, federal, uh, U.S. federal judge Patty Saris ruled that uh, in a response to your suit that um, authorities will have to handle detention hearings differently involving immigration. Tell us what happened. Yeah, that's right. This is a historic ruling, uh, in which a class of immigrants uh, are entitled to bond hearings where the government has to justify why they are locking people up, uh, and also to say that they have to consider a person's ability to pay in setting bond. You know, in, under our Constitution, the government can't just lock you up and throw away the key and say you have to prove why you should get out. The burden is on the government to prove why you should stay in. So that's what this ruling does, and it's a really important victory for due process. Well, I, I was surprised, you know, to learn, because I didn't know it, that that could even be the case. How are you supposed to prove that you're not a danger or a flight risk, especially when in some of these cases there was this guy from Guatemala who's been here since 2006. He had no criminal history, except he did come into the country illegally, but other than that, he didn't have any criminal history. How is he supposed to prove this? Well, that's what we argued. There's no way that a person can prove that. So, you know, th this means that hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who, under the Trump immigration deportation policies, has been locking up and basically throwing away the key, now we're going to be able to get free, go back and be reunited with their families, go back to their jobs, uh, go back and continue to pay the taxes that they've been paying, rather than being put in prisons, away from their children, away from their families. Um, because you're right, Marjorie, there's, it's virtually impossible for someone who's locked up and doesn't have right, a right to a lawyer uh, at, the, at the government expense uh, to prove that they aren't a flight risk. Um, and so this way the government has to prove that, in fact, they are a flight risk. And in these cases, this is a New Hampshire dairy farmer, uh, a man in Massachusetts who had a wife and three kids who he'd been with, uh, these people aren't flight risks. 
uh, they've been living with their families, living in our communities for years. And so there's simply no reason for them to be separated from their families. They pose no danger and they pose no flight risk. Uh, and now they'll be reunited. So that's a wonderful thing to happen, especially around the holidays. Okay, let's get back to Spot. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Robot dog. Yeah, uh, is it Boston Dy- Dynamics, General Dynamics, I guess. Whoever, is it General Dynamics? I think it is. Boston, it's, Boston, it's Boston Dynamics. Uh, Boston right. Dynamics. Uh, Develop this robot dog. Now, on the plus side, uh, obviously, it's far better to send a robot into hazardous situations, as we've learned with some in some bomb situations Conan. than it is a, well, Conan is a dog, is a real dog. I right. Mean, no, I'm saying, but having a robot is it's far better, better than, than having send, Conan. Ro- oh, exactly. I'm sorry. But obviously there are some concerns that you guys over at the Civil Liberties Union have not just about this dog, but about robotic uh, aids in law enforcement. What are your concerns and what are you doing about them? So, I mean, the main concern is is secrecy. Um, I mean, you're right, Jim, that there are instances where you might want to have a robot go in if there's a chemical spill or a nuclear spill or something like that. But for day-to-day policing, um, you know, we learned during the civil rights movement how scary dogs can be. Imagine robotic dogs being turned on a civilian population. It's really terrifying. And we learned about this just by chance. Uh, There was a Facebook post by the state police saying that, uh, mentioning in passing that they were using a robotic dog, the first in the nation robotic dog used by a law enforcement agency. Uh, And so we did a public records request. We said, gee, we'd like to know more about it and found out that, in fact, they'd been deploying this robotic dog for three months in secret. They hadn't told anybody that they had it. So what the ACLU believes is that when law enforcement wants to deploy new technology, it's really important that the people that they're hired to serve and protect, that's us, uh, know about it and that it's transparent and open. Uh, and that will give us an opportunity, if we want to, to put restrictions on how these things are deployed. Uh, so we've been pushing for something called c- civilian control over police surveillance. Surveillance, excuse me. Civilian control mm-hmm. over police surveillance, CCOP. Um, and already uh, we've passed CCOP ordinances in a number of cities, Somerville, Cambridge, and Lawrence, all have CCOPS laws. Uh, and we'd like to see that actually go statewide so that when technology is being deployed, it's done openly, we have a public conversation about it, and we're able as a society to decide what, if any, restrictions we want to put on the use of technology by law enforcement. Well, the solution, though, in the interim that you just obviously mentioned is if you're followed by a robot dog, drive to Cambridge or Somerville as fast as you can, obviously. <laughs> but putting... <laughs> Putting that aside for uh, well, the moment. Well, you mo- certainly can't run because the dog can catch you. That's a very good By point. By the way, have we, have we seen what these dogs oh, look yeah, like? Oh, yeah. There were photos in the Globe the other day. Yeah, or in well, some it, news. Oh, yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. Do yeah. they have any hair? Really, <laughs> no, they're, they're oh, very yeah. scary. They look like scary dogs in sci-fi movies. Okay. You know, you know but can um, I get back to Boston yeah. Dynamics for a second? And, you know, you never, since this is not something about which I know very much, so you never know if this is a CYA kind of thing or if it's a legitimate concern that, frankly, is not unlike the concerns the Civil Liberties Union have. The, the, the leader of the, one of the vice presidents of the company made a couple of points that I think are important, that in all the lease agreements uh, with whoever the, the leasee is, the cops or whoever else, right. there is an agreement that they can't be used in any way that would physically harm or intimidate people. Again, on its surface, that obviously, I hope, is something we'd all agree with. And number two, the same vice president of Boston Dynamics goes out of his way to say, and that's why we lease rather than sell spot, because if there are violations of this or other prescriptions that are 
in our lease in our agreement, we have the ability to pull spot back so that essentially the the terms of use cannot be violated. Those right. are both good well, things that you guys would be on board yeah. with, obviously, right? Sure. I mean, I think that's great that Boston Dynamics wants to police its own police dogs yeah. and how law enforcement uses them. But in a democracy, you know, it's the people. Oh, of we course. The people are the ones who are supposed to be overseeing how our law enforcement deploys new technology. So whether we're talking about robotic dogs or face surveillance technology, we have a press pause on face surveillance uh, campaign and bill in the legislature. It's important that we submit this new technology to our democratic process so that you know, our law and policies keep pace with this cutting sure. edge technology. Let me tell you something. This is an insult to canines all around the world. The way it looks, things, you mean? These things dogs. These, are like, <laughs> these look like big bugs with long legs or something. They are really gross. I mean, look at this German yeah, they're not, Shepherd. They're not warm and cuddly. No, this I don't German, think they're intended to be German like <clears throat> the German Shepherd was a pretty can be a pretty scary dog. Yeah. He's, he's even horrified in the picture. Didn't you see yeah. it? They're fighting over a tennis mm-hmm. ball. Disgraceful. Right. Okay. okay. Well, Marjorie is signing on to your campaign because she doesn't like the way Spot looks. I don't. You know, we only have both a- of you both and all of your listeners to the press pause on face surveillance campaign as well as the Sea Cops campaign. Okay. One last thing. We only have several minutes uh, left, and I wanted to bring this up. Another other litigation you guys over there are involved in at the Civil Liberties mm-hmm. Union of Massachusetts, because obviously it potentially involves virtually everybody, and this deals with the whole question of uh, uh, warrantless searches of phones yeah. and laptops and things like that at ports of entry, at airports, uh, um, for uh, international travelers. And before you tell us all the details, what does search mean? I'm assuming search does not include, you're not contesting the TSA's ability to use their x-ray machine to see you know, that nothing is inside your laptop other than that which, which should no. be there. And same with you. You're talking about additional searches, correct? Yeah, no, what, right. What we're talking about is your smartphone or your laptop being searched without a warrant um, when you come into the country or leave, you know, at the border, when you come into the country or leave the country, generally when you come in. And so we brought this lawsuit uh, along with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the National ACLU, and the ACLU of Massachusetts uh-huh. uh, on behalf of uh, 10 U.S. citizens and one lawful permanent resident from ten, seven different states. So this is a national uh, litigation. Uh, and we are, our plaintiffs include military veterans, journalists, um, students, an artist, an engineer from NASA, a business owner. Um, and what happened is they were reentering the country from traveling on business or, or personal when suddenly the border agents just decided to take and seize their laptops or their cell phones and to search them without a warrant. Um, none of them were ever accused of any wrongdoing, either before or after. But they, the border officials actually took, they confiscated their devices um, and kept them for several weeks and in some cases for months without returning them. You know, and you think about all the things you keep on your laptop or your cell phone, of course, your yeah. photos, your calendar, your contacts, all of these things. And the notion that our government simply that would suspend our constitutional rights at the border, it makes no sense. So this is a huge victory for privacy rights for all of us. Um, you know, we shouldn't have to give up our constitutional rights just because we decide to travel outside of the country. But, Carol, one uh, last, so can I ask a, another question? Mm-hmm. Do we only have a minute left? What are the mechanics of you, you do it through the X-ray machine, you decide that you want additional scrutiny of this laptop or phone. What are the mechanics? How do you get a warrant without having the person whose property you're getting a warrant for miss his or her flight, get delayed? What's the mechanics of that? Well, I mean, if there's a reasonable 
probability that there's a crime that's been committed. There has to be a reasonable suspicion that somehow the device has illegal contraband on it before they can search the device. And, and you can get a warrant pretty quickly from a judge with a phone call, or if it's, a, oh, if it's a serious danger at the moment, you could actually do it and get a warrant after the fact. Oh. Uh, but it's important, I'll, and I'll, I'll end for you guys. The Supreme Court, uh, in a recent ruling upon which this federal court ruling was based, uh, said that equating searches of physical items and digital devices is like saying that a ride on a horseback is materially indistinguishable from a flight to the moon. So as technology uh, continues to be developed, as we have new technology, the ACLU will be working to make sure that our privacy rights and our constitutional protections um, are progressing along with the technology. Terrific. Carol, Carol it's great to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, Carol Rose, thank you. Thank you. Carol Rose joins us every month. She's the director of the ACLU from Massachusetts. And thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can find us 24-7 by way of our Boston Public Radio podcast on iTunes or wherever get your, you get your podcast. Tune in tomorrow for Art Kaplan, Juliet Kayyem, and our concert roundtable. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Mers, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, and Aidan Conley. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. Our on-site engineer is Ron Milton. Special thanks to the folks at the Newsfeed Cafe. What's on TV, Jim? Well, a couple things. One, we're going to talk to a presidential historian and a political analyst, somebody you know, Todd Domke, about whether the Republican Party of December of 2019 is the party of Trump or the new normal for the Republican Party for ages to come. Then we're going to move on to the 50th anniversary of Our Bodies, Ourselves, which obviously changed the world. Uh, this historic book on women's health and sexuality. The woman who started it all will join us from Newton. I mean, she's coming in from Newton. And a board of directors member who is bringing it 50 years later to parts of Africa. Stephanie nice. Lydon. Well, I know, it should be great. I'm dying to meet him, too. Stephanie Lydon, uh, following our conversation with, uh, with Bill McKibben, is going to talk about some local historic sites or trying to stave off the effects of climate change. And Marjorie, just like the president, I will praise Norway tonight in my commentary, oh. but for totally different reasons. Sounds like a, good, like a good one, Jim. I would hope so. I'm Marjorie Eden. I'm Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow. I hope you don't get too much snow or get too cold. And uh, thank you for listening today. And thanks to the folks at the Boston Public Library. Bye.